I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. I'm Ryan Bolin. And we love to watch. We love to watch Sam Neill go crazy. No, not that movie. No, 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 not that one either. Yeah, that one. Hey, Pete. Hey, Ryan. Hey. What's up, Aaron? How you doing, buddy? So let me tell you why I paused after you said your name, Ryan, in between uh, We Love to Watch is because on Facebook, I think your name is Ryan John. That's true. And so I was like, when I heard you say your last name, I'm like, who the fuck do we have on the show? Like, he messed it up. <laughs> he messed it up. <laughs> I, for a moment, I was like, do we, is this the same Ryan? Yeah. Yeah. This is actually like a, a doppelganger situation. Like, this is like the new cool version of Ryan yeah. that we replaced. Like, he has a mustache and like. Brian, how many kickflips did you do today? Uh, I did a couple pop shove That's so cool. I don't even know what the fuck that is. Oh, 360 pop shove it? Yeah, you wouldn't. Yeah. Probably pretty radical. Yeah. How much longer is your dick than the other version of you? Much. <laughs> <laughs> that's my favorite. Yeah, don't. Hey, don't get into specifics. Mm-mm. If you get into specifics, that's where they nail you no. to the ground. Just give some general. Let them fill in the gaps. Yeah. That's my favorite unit of like this much. Oh, is that the metric system? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> three much. Three muches. Many. Significantly. Uh-huh. <laughs> These are all these are all science terms. It does sound uh, kind of Canadian for a bigger dick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, welcome to Dick. Talk. We we really so we we've really started. Like I've listened to the last couple of our episodes, and like we, like the last three or four episodes. All start with us talking about our guests' penises. I'm about to say, I didn't start that conversation. I was like, I'll roll with it. That's that's fine. But. I'm starting to think it's a trend that we need to follow down to the bottom and see where this goes. Peter later in life is going to tell us, like, because he's like, you need an icebreaker? Bring up your size of your dick and just see what happens. Like, trust me. People will laugh. People will yes and just, like, go with it. <laughs> I'm sure that's a great way to just have everyone leave and then they're just not a party anymore. Yeah. If you're not getting prompted, though, that's hard for an icebreaker. You, got, you, oh, yeah? you really have you really have to like think of a good way to work it in like and I know what you're thinking but it's bigger than you're imagining. Yeah. Oh yeah. I would say like most of my church groups it goes over pretty well. Mm-hmm. I know you hear that my name's Ryan average size dick John but it's not <laughs> It's Ryan Big Dick Bolin. Yeah, coming at you. I like, I like that you said. I like that you said most of them. Yeah, which a implies you're a member of enough that there can be like a, a percentage. Yeah. Oh yeah. I like and that. also and, some of them know what's knows what's up. They're like, some, they're and the some end. of them are not pleased. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the best way to, to communicate this message is a megaphone. Because mm-hmm. like a megaphone is how you cut through all conversation and communicate information as quickly as possible. It's efficient. You don't want to have to repeat yourself over and over yeah. again. I would hate to repeat myself about any dick information. Yeah. I'd rather scream it once at the top of my megaphone and then just call it a day. <laughs> And then, it's big! <laughs> yeah. And then we continue with our uh, Lent Fish Friday, whatever we're doing. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's like, what did that construction worker just come out and yell? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like even if you're in a conversation about penis size, like you communicating your penis size is probably going to come out of the blue. You just got to really work it into conversation, real smooth like. Like you're at a bar and like, hey, I'll take uh, 11 inches of vodka. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, I mean eight fingers. 
<laughs> whatever, like, whatever your unit of measurement, I call it one of me. I like to imagine the bartender just uh, obliging your order and just pouring over a pint and just spilling on the bar over and over again. He's like, he said 11 inches. Yeah. The I'm pint's only eight inches tall, but he said 11 inches. I'm here for the yeah. subway you- song sub. <laughs> <laughs> you, you you owe me $375 for that drink? <laughs> Hope it was worth it. Uh, so, yeah. So, uh, new intro segment, Dick Talk. Yeah. I, was, uh, I was wondering how you're going to segue out of that. You're like, yeah, yeah so, yeah. Talk Thank about you. the dicks you want to hear about. <laughs> so, yeah, Ryan's here again. Yeah, Ryan's uh, here. Hey, Ryan. Hey, what's up? I, yeah, I don't. I don't know what this podcast is turning into the last few weeks. It's like I can't get out of it, or we have regressed to a level that's that. That's the only thing we find funny. I don't know. I think if anything, it's it actually works as an icebreaker. Where now we're all talking. You know, it might be about dicks, might be about who knows, but yeah. it's mostly just about dicks. It's about I mean, we were talking about like our favorite uh, works by Foucault before we got on the oh, yeah, on the air. Very deep. Yeah, oh, he's got a great dick. Uh, so, great. so Ryan, Ryan was on. Uh, Ryan was on our uh, Southland Tales episode. He uh, is uh, very good friends with Peter. I like to think uh, our friendships uh, between me and Ryan has eclipsed that. Uh, we've only talked once before this, but it was it was a magical episode. I'd I'd listen to it again. Yeah, I was hoping when you said very good friends with Peter, I was like, and even better friends with Aaron. Yeah, 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 of course. Like my friendship with Ryan is like an inch deep, but a mile wide. <laughs> Yours is the Marianas Trench. I feel like you could have segued that back into TikTok really. Yeah, that's where I thought I thought it was going. No more inches. No more. No more centimeters. No. Definitely no centimeters. <laughs> Um, so we're, we're, we're not, so after 15 minutes of dick talk, yeah. it's a new month. It's, it's a full month, uh, that was carping about Carpenter. So the, the quote unquote lesser works of John Carpenter. And we are starting it off this week with In the Mouth of Madness, the 1994 Sam Neill movie, kind of based on Lovecraft and Stephen King and going fucking nuts. The movie this week is, in a weird way, something that I think that the horror culture has tried to take back. Um, Yeah. And that is a movie that, uh, at its time, was not received well. It's like 44% on Rotten Tomatoes. Critics basically saying, you know, back in 1994, uh, like, Carpenter doesn't know what he's doing here, or this is a pastiche of his other works, or like, blah, 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 blah. To me, it feels like something he's never done before. And it's a work that I'm really, really fond of. So, yeah, calling it a lesser work is purely cultural standards that we're trying to take back. Yep, and that's exactly, uh, I think, what's going to kind of get into our, our opening segment, which is we're just going to go through our all of our personal top ten John Carpenters. We're not going to do, like, an hour long. We're not going to get into them too deeply because uh, some of them we've done on the podcast. Some of them we're, we're, we're probably going to do all of these on the podcast at some point. Uh, I, think, I think I speak for both Peter and myself uh, by saying John Carpenter is... Uh, probably one of our top five filmmakers each. Uh, Ryan, don't know where you stand on it. He's definitely up there, yeah. The top ten that we're going to go through, because he basically only made, I think it's 17 movies uh, that were theatrically released, and I would say that the ten that I'm going to talk about are unassailable 4.5 to 5 star movies. Like, they, the next seven are either pretty good to bad, but, I mean, there's not that many filmmakers that, in my opinion, make, like, ten classic movies. And a couple of those movies that we're going to talk about are on this month's Lesser Works of John Carpenter. So this is kind of our chance to both introduce one of our favorite filmmakers of all time, but also kind of codify what we mean by lesser. And that it is it is really, like, movies that 
didn't do well uh, financially, that were not critically well received, and that really have not necessarily taken their ca- their like place in the canon. The thing wouldn't qualify for a month like this. Now we already did the thing, even though that movie got terrible reviews at the time of its release and didn't make any money. But that was like almost immediately, I feel like, rediscovered as a bona fide, you know, top 10 thriller list. That back, I think, pretty quickly, at least in a relative sense, within five, 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. And even stuff like They Live. We're not going to do that this month, even though I love They Live, because that really has become like a very meme thing. People know about it. It gets referenced all the time. So the movies that we're doing are either have a reputation as meh or yeah that was okay even today i think and i hope we're gonna find uh interesting angles on all of them because i think that our passion for carpenter uh will lead us to dig a little deeper than you know it's not halloween or you know it's not the thing like i I think that would be a very boring way to approach any of these four works even if you disagree with our assessment on their success or failure. Well, and especially even uh, outside of the instant, whatever, how it did either box office or critically, after time, it's it's interesting that even these lesser-known works, you can't even say bad movies of John Carpenter. I mean, it's it kind of reflects on how skilled he is that it's because you're reviewing the 4.2s instead of the 5 out of 5 movies. You're like, it's it's still a good movie. Yeah. It's a great time. Like I mean, because Peter told me all the ones that were options to do and it's like all those are good movies i would have a good time watching i asked to do this one because i hadn't ever seen it oh my god i hope you loved it oh. but we'll get it no, save it i save know it. i know shut up you shut up <laughs> shut the fuck don't up don't there. you shut yeah, up yeah don't get to my prodding although i guess we're gonna do a top 10 yeah so there's a good chance it's on it but uh and and when we're t- like there are some real real lesser works of john carpenter sure uh, Village of the Dam, The Ward, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. I think these are three mo- – those are especially, I think, the three movies that Peter and I really don't have much of an interest in doing. Actually, so, Yeah. I, I would do Village of a Dam only in the context of comparing it to the original, which I love. <laughs> yeah. So it's it's really like lesser that is still fantastic. It's just not the bona fide classics that a lot of his work has become, uh, whether in the mainstream or among horror fans. So – more fans, families horror of fam. Ho- up, families of horror people. Yeah. yeah, every big director, every important director's filmography over time, which carries cultural clout, changes. So, like in a lot of directors, like the fact that like AI was like a massive disaster at the time for for Spielberg. And, you know, even retroactively for Kubrick, because, like, that was a movie they worked on together, and Spielberg kind of did it for Kubrick. That's a movie that now you talk among people who love Spielberg, and, like, it's right up there with Saving Private Ryan. So, over time, uh, once expectations... You're talking about 1941? You're talking about Steven Spielberg? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> over time, your, cult- your cultural clout of what films you make, like, changes because the culture changes and what movies resonate with people changes. And I'd like to take a first look at a lot of these movies that were kind of passed on and also, I think, haven't necessarily been given a fair shake. So with that, let's first mention the four that we're doing this month, if you didn't already know. We're doing In the Mouth of Madness. We're doing Prince of Darkness. We're doing Escape from L.A. And then we're ending the month with Ghosts of Mars. And we'll talk a little more about guests at the end of it. But those are the four that we are considering in that criteria of lesser works that deserve to be talked about. 
Having said that, uh, let's let's go through our top ten. Let's we'll start at the bottom. So I guess the first things first. So I have seen all of Carpenter's theatrical movies. I actually made a point to finish the remaining four that I hadn't seen like uh, three years ago. Where are you guys at? Any that you haven't seen before we kind of go through the top ten? I haven't seen um, Memoirs. I have not seen Village Starman as per his theatrical release. Okay. And I haven't seen uh, Memoirs Village or uh, Vampires Act. Okay. And up until a couple days ago in the Mouth of Madness. Yeah, absolutely. It made my list for uh, October movies to watch last year. And I think I ended on like 63 horror movies in October. Jesus Christ. Well, all three of us take sports. Which yeah. Very but I also... But no, In the Mouth of Madness was one where Peter actually gave me the disc and it was just like sitting on my counter. And I was like, oh, oh. so I, I originally was going to wait till next <laughs> October. And then this came up. I was like, well, oh, but we I ruined that one. Yeah. Oh, yeah no. So, so okay, he'll, only, he'll only get to 62 next year. We should have you on for one of our October episodes. Absolutely. So you can kind of run through some of the stuff you've been watching. Like uh, we're going to do as a regular segment. But anyways, so we're really not going to get too deep into uh, anything. This is not going to be like one of those where we, we pause to talk about each one. But uh, why don't we go through? We'll just we'll go through 10 through six. And then let's pause in the middle and kind of talk about where we're at and kind of go the requisite. Are you fucking kidding me? How is that so low? Or <laughs> whatever it is that we're going to do. And then we'll pick it back up for the last five and do the same thing. So my top 10 is, like I said, it really is, I think, classics all the way through. So this is this is not the distance between like a 1 and 10, like uh, best to worst. This is really like best to almost best. So I, I do want to preface that it really is after I think 10 that my list kind of takes a turn towards like, okay, that was pretty good. But these 10 are just, they're just so goddamn good. So, uh, I'm going to start with number 10 and it is Prince of Darkness. So, my number 10 is The Fog. Uh, I would put 10 as Ghost of Mars. My number 9 is Assault on Precinct 13. My number 9 is They Live. My number 9 is Assault on Precinct 13. Oh, Ryan, I knew you were special right? on Giant Penis. <laughs> uh, I really hope no- that the Giant Penis Brothers for Life so that I can actually make that tie-in. Anyways. Yeah, we, we both have had sex with a woman, unlike other people that rank Whoa, you, number nine. You, you don't know my life. <laughs> Fair enough. I just know Peter's. Uh, my number eight is Escape from New York. Uh, my number eight is Mouth of Madness. Uh, my number eight is Big Trouble in Little China. My number seven is Escape from L.A. Uh, my number seven is Prince of Darkness. My number seven is Escape from L.A. Oh, my God. <laughs> sexy, sexy Maybe man. Maybe you guys should uh, run the podcast. Yeah. My number six is In the Mouth of Madness. Mine is Big Trouble in Little China. Mine's Christine. Hmm. So, so yeah, we're going to take a little break there. So, uh, that's interesting. So, the only one that has been mentioned that's not in my top ten is Christine. Which I actually I'd put down as a three star movie. I saw it for the first time. It was one of the four I caught up with. Uh, Peter, you're the one that said the first time you watched it was a three star movie. The second time it was a five star. Yes, I watched it uh, when I was in high school, and it really didn't click with me. And then I watched it recently. I kind of loved everything about it. Like the central performance by Keith Gordon is pretty incredible. I saw it so recently that I probably am not going to have like a crazy different reaction. It is ranked 12th on my list. Mm -hmm. Um, But it is the one that I feel like I'm missing something that some people are getting. So definitely a huge candidate for this show. 
I think it's one of the best Stephen King adaptations, to be totally honest. From I think it's number th- From book to movie? Or? From book to movie, yeah. I think it's The Shining, then Carrie, then that. And then I'm kind of surprised. Uh, I think you guys both rated Big Trouble in Little China in your bottom ten, right? Yeah. That's going to show up on my later list, but that was... When did you first see that? Uh, college. I saw Big Trouble in Little China for the first time maybe like three months ago. Okay. My example would be Goonies, only because that's another one where I, n- I never saw it at a younger age or anything like that growing up. Goonies is a great example for that. If you don't see it by a certain age, you don't get it. Exactly. Where it's like, then all of a sudden I saw it as an adult and I was like, okay. And you, you're sitting there and you look around on the couches and everybody else has like pillows, like their little kids like pulled near their chest, like, oh my God, Goonies. And it's like a good, it's fine time. I, that's how I felt like about Big Trouble in Little China, which I loved. I love that there's like a certain hokiness. Yeah. That six to 10 is, is a pretty good hodgepodge of depending on when I've seen it. And because there's some that are just like in a nostalgia wipe. Big Trouble in China, like I said, I didn't see it until I was like 19 or 20. So it, it, it didn't really feel like a kid connection with it. But what it did have uh, is it's like one of only two movies along with Army of Darkness, uh, which I saw for the first time when I was like 15, where I felt like the protagonist in these these crazy situations reacted the way I always wanted protagonists to act. Wait, he's a normal guy. He's a normal guy who is like using every cheat at his disposal he is annoyed and perplexed by everything that's going on he's not interested in it from a mystery standpoint he's not in awe he's just like what the fuck is this shit yeah what am i doing here and he's making mistakes that somehow work in his favor but like you're like ooh, oh he's in like oh okay it's not like he's like some skilled dude where all of a sudden he went like jason Bourne on him and he never really becomes uh like a hero it's not like he has a hero's quest where at the end he uh you know drops his slacker ways and really like he he just kind of lucks into the whole thing and and slacks his way through and then when he's down to it at the end, uh, this is more Army Darkness than Big Trouble. It's just kind of a, a well, whatever. I guess I'll just make fucking gunpowder and blow up these goddamn skeletons and put blades on my car. Like, it's the sort of stuff that when you watched a lot of these action movies that I watched as a kid, they were following these kind of rules that heroes followed that these two people broke away from. Well, uh, like every single one of them. So, it just, I just, I really, I really love that. Yeah, and at the end, doesn't, isn't he like Kim Cattrall? still have like chemistry or whatever and he's just like nah yeah. no I gotta go back on the road with my big rig like he doesn't have like you said there's not like even like a hero's quest where he's like I gotta continue saving the world he's like no I gotta keep driving my truck yeah it's been, Exa- it's exactly. been real this has been a crazy couple days and, you're and like, Ash at oh, the yeah. end of Army of Darkness yeah goes back to S-Mart yeah. and just find someone else like it's it's a great subversion at all those like normal guy becomes a mythical hero trope and uh, the show continues that the show isn't like he went back to the middle ages to fight more skeletons yeah. the show Ash versus the evil dad is like he's a bum oh, i still haven't watched any of it it's it's amazing I have, it's uh, really good um, so and then uh, the, the, my comparison point uh, army of darkness is a good comparison point to big trouble in little china i think particularly stylistically because they're big and broad and cartoonish and they're almost like gremlins too like it's like this living cartoon but i compare big trouble in little china to to sicario which is like diametrically opposite to it mm-hmm. but they both have these protagonists who should not be the protagonists and then as the movie goes on, they realize they're more and more out of their league. The movie keeps reiterating, like, this isn't your movie. And I kind of love, like, that kind of movie where it's, like, completely upending your expectations. Because you expect Emily Blunt to get this, like, kill on this cartel leader. And you expect uh, Jack Burton to finally kill Lopan with this, like, 
big dramatic fight. And you're like, no, neither of them gets that sort of ending. I agree. There's definitely that same pacing where it's just she's completely out of her league and the same with him where it's like he's he's dealing with mythical stuff that he had never even heard of before that day where it's like the same thing where she's she feels like she's in control as does he and it's it's just not panning out that way where all of a sudden it's like no no there are like higher forces there are different things going on there are like other agencies dealing with each other and you're kind of a pawn but you feel like you're the hero of the movie and then all of a sudden yeah. you realize that you lucked out into a win so you're just like okay I guess I'm going to walk away from this perfectly sad and I think the reason that you're going to see it higher on my list um, is just because it's it's there's too many movies try to do that and then fall in love with their hero yeah and and so it's really hard to actually have a hero where the movie itself feels like it has antagonism towards and doesn't hold up on a pedestal in any way, shape, or form. And so I really think that Army of Darkness and Big Trouble in Little China are these like almost like one of a kind movies where they are competent in every way, uh, from a director standpoint, story standpoint, all that stuff, but do it without ever with with literally having distaste in their mouth for their quote unquote heroes yeah they never give them that turn where they like give up their slacker ways and turn everything around you're, i mean like it's a normal person i mean it's like you said it's how you would react and and things would happen and you're just like all oh, right why like you got to roll with the punches but yeah and the movie looks down on them from beginning to end. oh yeah kurt russell which is Big which Trump is rare. China is not like some revered person i love that part of it where he like it starts off and he's like no you owe me money you're coming with me <laughs> I don't trust you. Like that kind of stuff. Where even though they're buddy buddy, and he's like got a likable tone about him, you're like he's he's not a like he doesn't kick in the yeah, and, and, and I, life yeah. right away. Like usually that's how you introduce the hero of the movie. Yeah, and they never get sucked into the story that's going on around them. They're like, I don't give a shit about this. You what, just f- leave me alone yeah. with it. Which which is also rare because normally you when you have your crazy mythology, you want the audience to be engaged, and the easiest way to do that is to make your protagonist engaged. Yeah. So it's it's uh, yeah. No, but I, I, I agree. I know we said I know we said that we we wouldn't talk about it, but I love the uh, the scene in that movie. Now, of course, that we like talking about it. I'm like, oh, you know what? I should do it. But like, I <laughs> I love the scene in the movie when he's in his actual big rig when he's stuck in the alley and both gangs are yeah. towards him. Like, even that, he's just like, how am I in this situation? I want out. Like, I don't care about anything else. I just want out of this situation. That's the movie setting yeah. up the movie in visual details, which yeah. I think. Mouth of Madness also does a lot of really great John Carpenter, just like traditional but highly effective techniques. Like Ryan was saying, the scene with the semi in that alley caught between two fights. Just like in that, in Mouth of Madness, there's a sequence where um, Sam Neill and, a, and a, one of his clients are sitting in a diner and there's a dude, oh, yeah. dude oh, walking towards him with an axe and you're right like beginning. this is setting up the whole movie yeah. this is setting up how you're supposed to feel about Sam Neill that he's this dummy who doesn't realize that bigger things are coming towards I'm him I'm here to do my job and get done with this meeting while something gigantic world ending is just walking towards me and you're like nope everybody else is freaking out and I don't even notice yeah his, this whole massive Lovecraftian evil is marching down towards him and he's still worrying about like his next pay cut on his next job and he's like well I guess this will I guess I could take that but and I also like, like that he doesn't notice like he doesn't see it and then ignore it it's just like they're just busy in their own world like because they're they do like to do that a lot I think in movies yeah. where they're like that guy looks nuts whatever and they just ignore it yeah uh, that's John Carpenter in a nutshell I think Aaron's like you can't <laughs> talk about the movie yet yeah yeah top five so um my number five is The Fog, which uh, the only thing I'll say about it is uh, this is I was very happy that I saved this for my uh, final in my uh, John Carpenter catch up. This was the, so this was the last new John Carpenter movie I watched and I fucking loved it. 
Oh, my last is going to be like Village of the Damned or Memoirs of an Invisible Man. That sucks. I actually still haven't seen The Fog, only because in high school, a bunch of our friends wanted to go see the remake and it looked like horrid garbage. And it was. I, I refused to see it. And uh, and so then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, fuck that movie. And Peter's like, no, you should go. You should definitely still watch the original. Yeah. Um, the, I hate The Fog remake for two reasons. One, that it made people maybe think the original was shitty. And two, I talked to a bunch of people when I recommended The Mist and they said... I saw the mist. It fucking sucked. Mm-hmm. And they started naming details from the fog remake. Tom Welling. <laughs> the glass started, starts coming in like a ghost. And they started not. They started naming re- uh, details from the remake. And I was like, no, the movie's called The Mist. And then like literally 0% of the time people were like, oh, I should check out The Mist. They were like, hey, I saw the fog and it was really bad. Oh, I did that to you in high school. You're like, the fog? I'm like, oh, or The Mist? And I was like, oh, that garbage movie. You're like, no, 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 Ryan. The Mist. And now <laughs> so it's, it's a great movie. It's, so, so, it's a, so, it's it's a solid has... impression of Peter, too. No, no, no. <laughs> no. no, yeah. no. Like, it was like a lot. <laughs> Sit down. He's like, no, 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 stop talking. You're wrong. I'm like, all right, okay. <laughs> I got some precipitation knowledge to Wait, drop on you, like, motherfucker. This is not the first time I've had this conversation <laughs> with somebody. You need to stop talking right now. <laughs> <laughs> So I did number five. So, uh, Peter, I think you were next. Uh, my number five is Assault on Precinct 13. Uh, my number five is In the Mouth of Madness. My number four is They Live. My number four is Christine. Of course, it's Escape from New York. My number three is Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, Escape from New York is my number three. My number three is Halloween. Interesting. I so I actually thought our one and twos would all be the same. I know. So my number two is Halloween. My number two is also Halloween. My, my number two is They Live. And then uh, The Thing All Around? Yeah. Yeah, The Thing is All oh, Around. Oh, wait, no, mine's Passion of the Christ because it's my favorite Carpenter movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure if you listened to last week's episode I, or I, I, no. we we do really hacky jokes. Whoa, no, I just figured that that was probably the right tone of jokes <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So here's what's interesting is that we <laughs> that was such an exciting top ten for our <laughs> listeners probably because we all shared nine of the same movies and the big difference was I had Escape from L.A. and you both had Christine. Well, I had Escape from L.A. number seven. <laughs> I had to have it only because like that's one of those where it... do you had Ghost of Mars because you haven't seen Prince of Darkness, which yes, is on our top ten. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much for engaging in the top 10 John Carpenter movies. Engaging. What a fucking weird way to say that. Uh, And then plus potentially more depending on where Peter decided to edit. Yeah, thank you for engaging with our content, Ryan. Anytime. Yeah, our consumers are going to be very excited about this new content. I think before you guys get sponsors, you should just have a Ryan Bullen moment where I'm like, hey guys, it's me. (laughs) Have you ever thought about this? Anyways, back to the show. (laughs) We can do that. You just have to give us money. (laughs) (laughs) There's no website or anything to buy. It's just Ryan talking. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Ryan. Thank you so much for being on brand. (laughs) (laughs) These are movies that I see myself wanting to watch 30, 40 years from now. And not that, but actually, because Peter has the list pulled up right now, I mean, just in front of our faces, I'm surprised with how many I look at and I can tell you exactly where I was the first time I saw them. And I always think that that's an important factor of movies because, like, sometimes it's because they're bad or just because something happens that night or whatever. But, like, there are eight of them where I could tell you the very first time I sat down and watched it from beginning to end. And I, I think that's interesting and says a lot, even if some of them are when I was in eighth grade and some of them were, you know, last night. You're like, I'm going to remember that because 
like they're good movies. They're interesting at the very least, even even the lesser ones. I think I would say, and then I would say on that list, I'm like thinking where it's like uh, Salt Town Precinct 13 in the Mouth of Madness. Obviously, last night we just watched for the first time, but there there are a couple of those where like the thing. I remember I was in Peter's basement, just like hanging out watching because like at that and that because it's been there have been so many just, years just tied to a chair. But it is though. It's like there's so many years. In fact, instead in Peter's basement, it was how were the couches rearranged at the time because they would like move them every four years or whatever. And so you're like, oh, I remember like we were hanging out. Yeah, with with every presidential election. Yeah, exactly. You're like, oh, <laughs> on those days, it was, you know, it's always like Sunday afternoons, freshman year of high school. It's not what one movie do you want to watch? It's like, what what three movies are we watching today? <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know. Just yeah, no, a, I'm, I'm, I miss those put days. Put them all on. Yeah, no. Those yeah. days don't exist anymore. Yeah, they, they only exist when I severely neglect my responsibilities and I don't even have children, so. It's like my wife. My wife. My wife. To bed or very early, like mm-hmm. she fell asleep on the couch and I'm like, I'm going to get in three one hour and a half hour movies in the next four hours. <laughs> well, I was really surprised that In the Mouth of Madness was 90 minutes. Like even when Peter put it on. It's 90 minutes. Yeah. We, yeah. It's the perfect length for this crazy. Movie. We'll talk about I it. I was later. very, I mean, like I was shocked. I, I thought when we were sitting down at the very least, it'd be a two hour movie. Uh, but when he's like, oh, it's just a quick 90. I was like, oh man. Okay. Yeah, so, and then the last thing I'll mention on the lists is Escape from L.A. I did rank over Escape from New York. So, we will we'll save that. So, uh, yeah, we'll talk that about the FLA, NY thing later this month because you're an insane person. We're doing Escape from L.A. I, I will say I'm going to watch both of them before. I will, too. I, yes. Since I'm not going to be but, is it mostly because of the surfboard scene? Because that's like uh, a spicy meatball. <laughs> in, our, uh, in our Escape from L.A. episode later this month. But um, you guys want to talk about Mouth of Madness? Cause so much. So much. I really like that movie. Yeah. It's my number six. It's your number six. Number Let's six. talk about number six. Several hundred thousand strong. Without their bandages. Their voices raised in song. And when the streetlights sputter out. They make this awful sizzling sound. So we haven't been doing five or ten second or five or ten. Yeah, we've never done a ten second recap. There's a mouth. There's a mouth, and it's mad. Mm -hmm. Who wants to do the ninety second recap, Peter? Um, I can do the 90. I actually think I'm pretty well suited to the 90 if you want to do that. Okay, so I'll do alternate taglines. Let's really, let's rebrand alternate taglines. Sam Neill is pretty good. Is in this movie. (laughs) Yeah, Sam (laughs) Neill's before the Elder Gods. Yeah. Oh, that's better. Yeah. Or like, this mouth's got teeth. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) There is actually uh, pretty funny in the movie. There's a, a Sutter Kane poster, and it has a tagline below it, and it says like, "If this doesn't scare you, you're already dead." Basically, yeah. which is the tagline yeah. for if, Phantasm. If this doesn't scare you to death, you're already. It's kind of like what if Stephen King's books made a good movie? <laughs> Think about Astri- it. Asterix, The Shining. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, I'd be like, uh, watch Sam Neill lose his job because of mental illness. 
Yeah. You liked him in Jurassic Park. Now see Lovecraftian monsters tear him to bits. <laughs> if you love Jurassic Park, you probably would be okay about this. Yeah. This is also an interesting movie because it's mostly um, roaring up to the apocalypse. Like, it's a pre-apocalyptic movie. It's not a post-apocalyptic movie. Um, it's all the build-up. Yeah, it's all build-up. And I think people that, like, really love, like, Walking Dead nitty-gritty shit, even though Walking Dead is really bad at that, uh, people that really love, like, people fighting over cans of beans, they would hate this movie because it all just leads up to him walking through an abandoned New York, sitting down in an abandoned theater, not having to deal with anything because he doesn't, it doesn't matter his survival, his sanity, like none of it matters because it's it's it, everything is lost. Like this would be a movie that would probably really piss off a lot of like people that love like nitty gritty apocalyptic thrillers. Oh yeah, and when he sits down and actually watches that part of theater, I think that that'd be enough for people to get annoyed. I mean, like there are plenty of people like that would just be like, "What the fuck? Okay, whatever." Yeah, and kind of dismiss it then as a whole. Yeah, where is he? I think Peter should just do the Jurassic Park theme uh, as well as he can in his own voice. <laughs> In the mouth of madness. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, hey, the only mouth of madness I know is Dexter Poindexter. Oh, <laughs> the guy, he's, right? he's, he's crazy. He's crazy. crazy. <laughs> hey, oh, oh. He sings the song, Dexter Poindexter sings the song, uh, Hot, Hot, Hot. How's that one going? Hot, hot, hot. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. okay so uh 90 second recap sam neill is a super cynical insurance investigator uh, who gets tasked with the uh mission of finding sutter kane this new guy that's this new horror author that's bigger than stephen king and his fans are super rabid or kind of uh, insane and kind of running the streets wild sam neill teams up with a uh publishing company hack to go find fictional town, supposedly, uh, Hobbs End, that Sutter Kane made up. And uh, when they get there, they discover that the town is completely tied to Sutter Kane's imagination. Sutter Kane uh, runs this town as a sort of like godly dominion. Uh, Sam Neill then discovers that it is Sutter Kane has set him aside and that his job is to deliver. Uh, the, the this manuscript for Mouth of Madness to the world. His his job is to get out there and uh, and and make his message heard. And this is Sutter Kane's final work because the world is going to end once Mouth of Madness is fully released and everybody gets to read it. And uh, Sam Neill gets out. He murders somebody because he's completely fucking insane. Ends up in an insane asylum. And the movie wraps in on itself. And you see what this first scene was in the movie where Sam Neill was in an insane asylum. He was in an insane asylum because uh, he murdered somebody late in the film. Uh, because the world is falling to shit. Uh, the insane asylum falls apart. And Sam Neill wanders into a mad world. And... Uh, walks into a movie theater and sees the film that we're watching being projected with himself as the central role. And he laughs and cackles Mm -hmm. and the world ends with him laughing. It's a mad, 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 mad. It's a mad, 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 mad. He he finds it kind of funny. Finds it kind of sad. Yes. Yes. (laughs) I love this movie so much. And I'm going to just quickly talk about my first impressions. I, it is, it is so good and conceptually in the way that it does fold in on itself and kind of – I mean the movie is about – I love anything where it's almost difficult. It's so either meta or 
uh, has so many layers that it's almost hard to describe. But the yeah, the, we're watching the movie because the movie is about the author writing this book that becomes this movie, and this this movie book is about what leads to the end of the world, which is the movie book that we are watching. Yeah. So I saw this for the first time. Uh, I was in high school. I'd seen Event Horizon, and I really liked Sam Neill in that, and obviously Jurassic Park. So I was kind of looking for another Sam Neill movie. So it was probably like 98. So I was probably like 15. I can't say this was my first John Carpenter movie. And I adored it from the get-go for a lot of reasons we're going to talk about. I think my first version of my top 100 movies of all time that I made in high school had this at like number 27. Oh, wow. And I should say that I think... One of the other things that's kind of amazing how much I liked it is that I didn't know Lovecraft because I was not that cool of a kid in high school. I wasn't either. I didn't get into Lovecraft till very recently. And I had never read a Stephen King book because uh, they were verboten in my household. My parents were super Christian and uh, they were like anti-Stephen King. And then by the time I got to the age that, you know, like 13, 14, where I was, I don't care what my parents think. I'm going to watch and read and do whatever I want. Um, I'd seen a few Stephen King adaptations, and I didn't think they were very good. Kind of put Stephen King as like a populist author that I wouldn't enjoy that much. So I never actually circled around and read a Stephen King book until about four years ago when I bought like 10 thinking, why the fuck haven't I read a Stephen King book? And uh, I've, I, but I've only read three to date. Um, I've read The Stand. I read uh, The Long Walk, which is a Richard Bachman book, um, which is an amazing book. I like The Stand quite a bit too. Pet Cemetery, and I'm actually about 100 pages into it as we are, are recording this because I'm going to try to read it before the movie comes it, out. It's only 3,000 more pages. Yeah. It is my favorite uh, Stephen King book and one of my favorite books of all time. And it's one of his only books that I think is over – that's over 600 pages that I think is like doesn't waste anything. I read The Unabridged Stand and it was the first book, which is like one of those examples of don't read this one first. And I was captivated. Like I read – you know, I, I, I was like I'm going to read a chapter and then I'm going to watch a movie type thing. And then like seven hours later and I was like I need to go to bed. Yeah, I, um, I have not read The Stand because I hated the miniseries so much, which is not fair to Stephen King because – the Shining is a fucking masterpiece, and yeah. the miniseries is garbage. So my point is, is that the two main influences on this movie, which is Lovecraft and Stephen King, were not references that I got. So if anything, I think my appreciation of this movie has only deepened. And even though I won't count it as you know a top fifty movie of all time for me anymore, because I've seen more movies <laughs> than I did when I was fifteen, it would be on a favorite movie list. I really like it, and I did notice on this rewatch some areas that I'm going to have some criticisms on, but I I feel like they are minor compared to how just this movie's like the last half hour of this movie is. Phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's finish this. So this came out in 94? 94, yeah. 94. When did, uh, just out of curiosity for author's sake, when did uh, Church of Scientology actually start picking up? 50s, 60s? So, because, I mean, like, I thought this was already, that was already kind of in full swing. So I I got that as another, because you said, obviously, Lovecraft and Stephen King, who gets a nice little name drop. I thought that was another one where just the idea of, I mean, I guess not cult-esque behavior stemming from an author's work, but... (laughs) Sorry. There you go. P- Peter Googled Church of Scientology to try and see what year. And the very first thing that came up was Church of Scientology, San Diego, <laughs> nearby, like 
where we are right now. And it has three stars. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> could, could be better trivia. That's pretty good. That's that's like a like, but don't yeah. love. Yeah. Don't want to watch it. I, I, I like the better churches of Scientology. I like give Catholicism three stars. Um yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Fine enough. Which Pope? <laughs> which which Pope? Yeah. Come on. It's Pope JP two. The young Pope. Um oh young Pope? Yeah. Sorry. I want to fuck that Pope. Um, no, 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 no. I was just gonna say I think I think that, that was the other thing that, that helped underlying where Obviously, he. I mean, he's got a following, but and it's not necessarily religion. It's more chaotic. But I felt that that was another one that it seemed similar, where people are scared, but for some reason there's still a solid mass that's getting some sort of drive from his writings. I think that's an interesting connection. I don't really pick up on that. I'll be honest, just because it it feels like really this movie is going for. Not not religion or philosophy or mysticism type cult, but like a a very specific type pop culture cult, mm-hmm. which which is which to be honest is more interesting to me because I feel like there's more rabid pop culture cults now in 2017 than there was in 1994 when this movie was made. Then Which, I would say, yeah, then wouldn't it be more so Scientology since there are less options? I mean, you said there are more nowadays compared to then. So I would think of like people like Tom Cruise, that kind of stuff, that would make it like arguably the most pop culture-y religion. But no, 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 no. But I'm not, I'm not saying you're wrong. But I, I find the movie fascinating more from the perspective of this idea of rabid fans of a work of pop culture oh, okay. yeah. be- becoming stronger than a religion, yes. which is basically what this movie posits, that the idea of loving a piece of fiction or a work of art or something that you know for a fact that no one is trying to sell you is real. Yeah. Like no one is no one is trying to sell that like the Marvel Cinematic Universe or DC Universe or Harry Potter movies is real. No one thinks that. I think in our day and age, a lot of times have more power than the old like cults. Oh yeah, which was like religion or philosophy or like Scientology. So I think this movie is kind of positing this world where like these new cults take over people's lives and they become obsessed with that. And um, I think that 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 existed in 1994, and and not necessarily for a bad thing. Like you know, you had Trekkies and you had all these you know types of thing. I'm not trying to say that like they really <laughs> believe it, in it to the the level of like religion, but the idea that people like kind of devote their life around this piece of pop culture to me is more fascinating than religion because if if you care about religion to that level it makes sense mm-hmm. because that is who created the world and our origin story this is like you know if you are like obsessed with star trek or obsessed with lord of the rings or obsessed with harry potter or whatever it is i find that more fascinating because you know it's a work of fiction yet it is it becomes a part of your entire life this fictional universe that you know is fictional and this movie kind of posits how that 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 could take over the world in a more powerful way than the the religions that people believe to be real like a work of fiction couldn't can have more power than uh, something that you hold to be truth based on faith. So, yeah. sorry, that was a little long-winded, but I think I think that's what the movie's going for, and that's why I kind of think that that connection doesn't quite work, because I think Scientology falls more into the uh, the religious side of things. But I actually like the comparison to Harry Potter specifically. I mean, I know you mentioned like Lord of the Rings, Star Trek, all those as a pop phenomenon, but I also think that something like Harry Potter works on another level because the idea of in that world like a muggle culture that gets 
mind wiped men in black style. Like there's like there's another yeah. album where you can be like, no, wait, this is real and it's right in front of us, but some people just don't realize like there's a nice like yeah. extra little like I yeah, no, I understand where you're coming from and I, I like that. I like that a lot. I think the Scientology thing that Ryan was hitting on is kind of interesting though, because L. Ron Hubbard wrote Dianetics as a <clears throat> specifically um, self-help uh, pseudo psychology and also religious text eventually. But also uh, as the church took off, all of his popular works also became yeah. church canon. So like, yeah, like Battlefield Earth. Yeah, Battlefield Earth became like parables to teach your life through. Just like I guess the parable is when the world collapses, you and Barry Pepper go and learn how to fly F-15s <laughs> in Colorado. Say, does that make like John Travolta are like Jim Caviezel in Passion of the Christ? Like, is that like where, where's the? I've never seen Battlefield Earth, so I don't even know who like their you're good savior is. You're like, all right, all right, fine. yeah, you're good. You don't need to. He, I think John Travolta's the devil. I'm about to say he seems seen evil. That. He's got like these weird alien dreadlocks. Yeah. Doesn't seem like a like a oh that's a, that's the good guy. He's not a solid bro, I would say in that film. But anyway, so yeah, Aaron, you ran right into the themes in the movie. Is that the film is about how you know the power of popular culture uh fandom can be crazy and also how fandom can be used as a a medium for uh communicating these broader messages and how like in a sense like fandom is like a modern religion in a godless world and like aaron and i both are atheists so like this is an interesting concept to us as people who are i guess i should jump back a little bit my my relationship yeah let's get to your experience and let's let's go right back head first yes 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 uh so my relationship with this movie is that when i first saw it i did not like it uh and i love john carpenter and partially i love john carpenter because of his straight ahead camera work and the fact that he shoots things not sterilely but sort of uh Straight ahead, like a Western. So he frames things in this Oh, way. so it's like a Western. It's uh, it's a little romanticized, but like you can see the action and it's not doing this sort of quick cuts in and it's not trying to speed up the action with a series of like fast editing movements and fast swooping camera work. And like that's not really his style, um, though these movies do have that at times it's used for serious dramatic effect. And, like, this movie felt like it was him getting more into, like, late 90s and early 2000s bullshit psychological thrillers, which I fucking hated psychological thrillers because after Sixth Sense, yeah, which I really liked Sixth Sense, obviously, but I think Sixth Sense sent off this wave of awful, awful psychology thrillers. Mm-hmm. Or psychology. Yeah, we, we've we've talked about that before, which is why I feel like I need to rewatch The Ring. I told you last Spooktober on this podcast because Spooktober I felt past. like that, that, that yeah, <laughs> yeah, the ghost of uh, Spooktober past because I felt like I was so sick of like the possession ghost PG-13 horror movies that I wasn't giving any of them a fair shake at that time because I it felt took horror into this uh, this area that I did not care for. Yes. And it, that's, that's all horror became. So, so I, I uh, yeah, that's a that's a great point, and I'm still like undoing that sort of like post sixth sense uh, trash effect that's had in my mind. I think it's why a lot of grown people hate slashers is because. Yeah. After Friday the Thirteenth and after Halloween, there was a lot of fucking garbage yeah. you had to sit through. Especially give a dude a machete or give him a knife and have him go towards kids. And yeah, like, oh. if you were an adult between like nineteen seventy five to. 1985 like yeah. you had to deal with a lot of garbage <laughs> yeah um well I, that's because reaganomics failed yeah. but also movie wise yeah. so uh, 
my favorite movie growing up was Escape from New York, but as I got older, it transferred to The Thing. Um, That's interesting. I, I don't think I knew that. Yeah, it was my favorite movie growing up for years and years and years. I watched it a million fucking times. And then also, I was a big Sam Neill fan, like you said, from Jurassic Park. It is kind of funny when, like, children get attached to the careers of middle-aged character actors, <laughs> yeah. not even from their continent. Yeah. I uh, loved Sam Neill. I got very, very excited when there was a fucking Merlin miniseries on NBC or Oh, ABC. yeah. I fucking watched that. So, yeah. No, Sam Neill was, like, a weird... I probably would have called him, like, one of my favorite actors, if not my favorite actor, like, for a time as a kid. Because Jurassic Park was, like, my favorite movie yes. for so long. Yes. And uh, Sam Neill, Jeff Goldblum, which collides with Jurassic Park as well, and Kurt Russell. Those were all people that, like, as a child, like, under 10, yeah. I was very concerned about their careers and really wanted them to do well. Um, yeah. And uh, the Merlin miniseries for Sam Neill was something that I was very excited about and, like, made my mom tape for me. And it was probably not age-appropriate for me when it came out. Mm-hmm. And- I remember really liking the ending to that, even though I couldn't tell you what it is at this time. Yeah, you, yeah. You were satisfied with the ending. You're like, all right, yeah, okay, Merlin, all right, yeah. good job. So, so, so me not liking <laughs> Mouth Menace at the time was kind of disappointing because uh, John Carpenter plus Sam Neill and also one that I hadn't seen yet. Like, that's... Very. Yeah. Wait, so just out of curiosity, because uh, when you when we were going into the show, you were like, uh, Sam Neill goes crazy. No, not this, that movie, not that movie, not that movie. Did you have other ones in mind besides, I mean, obviously, like, Possession? Yes. And Event Horizon. Yeah. Event Horizon. Horizon. But, like, would those be the two, or am I missing anything? I think those are the two, though, in, like, this joke. Because Possession has, like, this cult classic status that everyone loves it now, even though it was really hard to get your hands on and not that many people have seen it. And then Event Horizon is, like, his mainstream one that everyone's seen mm-hmm. where he goes nuts. Yeah. Well, because Possession I didn't see until a year or so ago where all of a sudden Peter brought it over and he's like, there's this great movie. It's got Sam Neill. I was like, oh, I know that motherfucker from yeah. Jurassic Park. Evangelical and- shit. I brought this movie to everybody I could. <laughs> yeah. But then it was really funny because it was like after that, I mean, I had already known who Sam Neill was and I liked him and that kind of stuff. But it was after Possession. So I was like, I want to see anything else that yeah. he's in. Just I was interested and it's weird, but like in the best kind of way. And it's terrifying in the best kind of way. That was another one where all of a sudden I, I was like talking enough all of a sudden about Sam Neill where my parents said that at one point. They're like, yeah, you like Sam Neill, but just because they're like out of nowhere all of a sudden, like you're like, oh, yeah, you're, you're like a Sam Neill fan way too. Are you watching Alcatraz? Way too late in the game. Yeah, where I'm like, oh, man, as I'm watching, uh, I can't even remember what uh, what's the Cillian Murphy show that's on Netflix right now. Peaky Blinders. Peaky Blinders, because Sam Neill's in that. And I was like, oh, he's great in that, too. He's fantastic. You know, it's, it's really funny, because I think it was Jurassic Park was the first one. Of course, I loved him. And then it was Event Horizon, which was, um, like, a, one of my first shit-my-pants terrifying movie experiences of my life. Understandably. Um, uh, I saw it in theaters. I had to walk home, which was, like, a mile in the dark. And it uh, it had a huge effect on me. And, and But Sam Neill was so good. So, yeah, Event Horizon scared me. Mm-hmm. And then I saw In the Mouth of Madness. And then there's, like, Dead Calm, where he's the good guy. Uh, but it's still, like, this crazy state. Billy Zane is the bad guy. It's a great movie if you haven't seen it. Uh, and then there's, like, that's it. And then, like, Possession, which I saw much later. Fuck for the Wilder People. Go see it. Oh, that movie amazing. Yeah, amazing. yeah, that's it's great, but there's and you know he's good in a lot of movies, sure. but there's not that many. Sam Neill goes crazy. Yeah, but the ones that exist are, uh, you know, again, Van Horizon is a total nostalgia pick, but like Possession in the Mouth of Madness, Dead Calm, 
and I'll say Event Horizon are all so fucking good. Like, why didn't he go crazy all the time? I haven't seen uh, Dead Calm, but the other three, they go, by the end of it, pretty balls to the wall crazy. I mean, like, it's not just like, oh, man, that guy's a little loopy. It's like, yeah, it's like quick cuts, pretty disturbing images, like just like very aggressive where you're like, holy crap, I'm, I'm feeling a little affected just like watching it. Yeah, I really tried to chase that Sam Neill crazy thing. I watched fucking Snow White Tale of Terror. Yeah. <laughs> so goddamn bad. We've talked about actors that Hollywood has not treated well. Uh, Sam Neill was on the list. Yeah, sure. He got some he's gotten some amazing roles in his life. And like when he very sadly passes away, he'll have a great body of work to stand on. So let's jump into the movie. So yeah. So the one thing that I love about Samuel's performance in this movie, because uh, Samuel, we can just talk about for forever, and uh, is is that Samuel starts off as this crazy dude, and it's so fun to watch as we just talked about. But then the movie takes a two weeks back or whatever look, says like, let's see how he got to this crazy state. He is so charming and so competent, and you're like, I could watch a whole movie of him in the Chinatown role. Because yeah. they do this little yeah. Chinatown riff where he's sitting in this room with Venetian blinds in, in, in this wood-paneled room, and he's just like, you tried to fuck us on no. this insurance claim. Yeah. The first thing you do is don't make your wife a partner. The second thing you do is don't sleep around on her. Yeah. It's like, you're like, oh, that's brilliant. You're like, oh, all this is, like, great to Yeah, watch. he's so fun to watch as a cynic because you don't watch him and go, like, he, he's not an affected cynic. Mm-hmm. But he, he's, like, this, like, cynic where you're like... The he's, jigs up. He's seen everything, and, like, his job is to be a cynic. So, mm-hmm. like, it, you, you never get sick of him being, like, this is fake. You never get sick of him throughout the movie as this, like, this this voice of rationality. You never, you never really get sick of that. And then when he finally turns, you're like, oh, shit. It, like, he was our voice of calm. Mm-hmm. He always was trying to be our voice of calm. Did you like that they, uh, the... I feel like you're somebody who doesn't necessarily always like the, you start at the end, here's how we got there type of person. I mean, like, where it's like, don't breathe, where it's like, okay, well, now I know where we have to at least get to that point before we can see yeah. the rest of the movie. That's a good call. Um, I'm usually I'm usually kind of against framing devices like this. Yeah. Especially if the movie is bad. Um, because then I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, why are you adding pretension to what should be, like, you're, the only thing this movie has going for it is the suspense. Why would you, I, I'm not like that about this movie because I think it really works and that Sam Neill, it's fun to watch the steps get taken back mm-hmm. and it is fun to watch, like, Sam Neill is trying so goddamn hard to not end up as the person that you first saw him in in the movie. The idea of Lovecraft is this sort of awful inevitability that no matter what happens, you will die a horrible death. No matter what happens, you will lose your mind. No matter what happens, uh, you have very little control over this old universe. And that is a very Lovecraftian idea to start with Captain's Log, to start with um, main character's log. Uh, I'm crazy now. Let's take a step back and see how this whole mystery evolved. Because Lovecraft is inherently, most of his stories, which I I should note, I've read most of Lovecraft's stories, like maybe like eight out of ten of them. One month I just like really dove in and just decided to read as much as I could. Um, They're inherently mysteries. And so you want to know how they got to point Z and they'll start at point Z or somebody will hint at point Z in the beginning and you're like, okay, how do we get there? And this, in that sense, it becomes more of a Lovecraftian thing to have this sort of framing device that asks a mystery. 
Yeah, and I think there's actually I, – I agree with you, Peter. And there's three reasons that this works in a way that it usually doesn't work in movies. Uh, the first one is is that it never cuts back to it. You see the framing device. Most lesser movies will have, like, moments where he's still talking to David Warner. So it never lets you forget that you're watching a flashback. Mm-hmm. This one, I think it's very easy, even seeing it many, many times – to forget that there's this whole thing where he's insane in the asylum because the movie's very gripping and it pulls you along and that I honestly think it's effective when you're back at the asylum after all the crazy shit you've seen. You're like, oh, yeah, there's this whole thing that I saw at the beginning. Uh, and so I think that helps make it work. Second thing that makes it work is it shows you a flash forward of the movie that you don't realize is a flash forward where it shows those and it does this a few times throughout the movie. And I fucking oh God, I love it so much. It's good. In this movie. I hate it in a lot of movies, <laughs> but it's so good because it is so like tantalizing the first time you see it. And then as you see it, you're like, oh, yeah, shit. These are crazy images uh, that you're going to see. And so it does like this quick flash thing that um, it's easy to mistake upon the first watch is like just imagery, not realizing that you're literally watching uh, the descent into madness in a quick uh, flash forward. And I think that moment really catapults it to um, to making you go, "Okay, what is going on? Here And then the final thing I'll say that I think really makes it work is that a lot of times these movies um, are actually giving away the best twist by revealing it, that he ends up in the insane asylum. And this movie, it doesn't fucking matter because the ending twist is so goddamn good. Who cares if you know if he ends up in an insane asylum because we have something – 10 times, 100 times better in store for you. Yep, that's true. There's an extra bit of, bit of, bit of pull at the end. It's not just like, I'm crazy, and you should go crazy too if you yeah. were saying... Everybody watch out! It's coming for yeah. you! Like, it doesn't have that. Like you said, it doesn't use that as an, as an element where it constantly jumps back. I, as a first-time watcher, I forgot. Yeah. I forgot that it was all of it was a flashback, whatever you would want to call it. And then even when Peter said, he's like, oh, well, the, at first, you know, he's he starts in the same time, and I had to tell myself, I was like, oh, yeah, right, but in, the, in actually watching the movie, I forgot, and when it cuts back to him having that conversation, I was like, oh, oh, right, duh. Like, so... I agree. There's, it, it starts off showing you that, but then it does such a good job at telling the story that you pretty much immediately forget because you're so involved in what's actually happening in front of your face. It honestly happens to me every time. Like, obviously, if I stop and think about it, I would go, oh, yeah, there's that thing at the beginning. Oh, yeah. I'm so engaged that I'm not – that opening moment is not an omnipresent thought, which in lesser movies, it, it just can't help but be. Mm-hmm. It trusts the audience, too. It doesn't have to keep coming back and be like, you know he's going crazy. You know he's going crazy. Isn't it crazy how we got there? Like, yeah. Oh. In another sense, Here's the Prestige is one of my favorite movies about movie making. It's like it's a magic trick, but it also wants to like suck you into the magic trick itself. And in that sense, it is like uh, a magic trick where he's like, you know that things are going to get bad. So you have this sort of ominous tone in the back of your head. But because Carpenter is such a propulsive, forward-moving filmmaker, he lets you forget that this is ever going to happen. So like you almost have like an ominous sense in the back of your mind that that, that things are going to get bad and you know things are going to get bad. But like... If you're actually trying to pay attention to all these fast-running details right at your face, you will forget. I agree. I think that's actually a really good comparison just in the sense of procedure or magic trick in general. Um, You realize the entire time you're trying to figure out 
how did he get there? How what like, what what drove him mad or what what all that kind of stuff? Sure, but is, if he's doing a good job as an entertainer, then the pulling up the audience member, the making a joke, stuff to distract you, then all of a sudden you're not looking for how does he do it. You're yeah. just enjoying yourself and then realizing, holy shit, that's amazing, and that does a good job. Where you're like, you realize that when the person call, like pulls out a four of hearts and then signs their name they're going to end up pulling that out of the orange on the table or whatever, but then they do so many things that you get distracted in the best kind of way that then yeah. all of a sudden you get to be left on your ass with everybody else. Like, oh, oh my God. Oh, okay, that was like really good. That was crazy. Rather than sitting there trying to put together a puzzle, which is the bad way of using You took my point and took it where I wanted to go because, yeah, that's that's exactly what he does. No, I really think the magic trick, though, is a really good analogy because you're right. The first thing he presents you is a mystery, which is how did he get in this asylum? And then he immediately makes more interesting mysteries that you forget. So it's the I saw the woman in half and everyone goes, oh my gosh, how'd you do that? And then he starts making the woman float in the air, all the different pieces. And then you immediately forget that he saw the woman in half. Mm-hmm. And now you're like, how are different pieces levitating? Yeah. And that's exactly where this movie goes. The structure of the film is very interesting because it's framed like it's going to be this neat little mystery that's gets solved within the context of it. And it's actually more of a Lovecraftian mystery where mm-hmm. they'll solve the immediate mystery the almost boring, everyday, banal mystery of, of the yeah, day. Yeah, where did Sutter Kane go? Where did Sutter Kane go? We found him. Uh, why is this person in a sane asylum? Uh, he murdered someone on the street for seemingly no reason. Those are all kind of basic plot points. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's mm-hmm. not really the mystery because then the movie sort of has, like, an epilogue that's, like, the universe gets so much bigger around him. It's not about, yeah, like, yeah, we find out, like, one guy went, went crazy at the end, we're like, why did the world go crazy? Oh, I agree. I think it does a, a brilliant job of shoehorning the audience into Sam Neill's character role. Like, you don't realize that going mm-hmm. in. Like you said, for all you know, the end of the movie is uh, the therapist or whoever he's talking to walks out and he goes, oh, man, that guy is crazy. I can't believe he put an X to that guy's head. Door shut. It would be a, the end of a movie. It would be a different movie, though. But instead, all of a sudden, you're like, oh, man, there, there's the him is trying to escape in the car and constantly going back to everybody with the pitchforks. Okay, now he's like all the smash cuts where you would think a mentally deranged person would think back and just think like, oh, yeah, I guess I did put an axe in somebody's head. Like you don't, yeah. you don't see him buying the axe. You don't see him doing all these things. And yeah. then all of a sudden he gets out and goes and sits down and he's like laughing hysterically and it's close up shots on his face. And all of a sudden you like realize you're like, oh, wait, no, like it, it tried to slip us into like the same madness that he is going into that you're just like, oh, okay. Like it, it kind of I didn't expect it to go there. And all of a sudden we're just sitting here in this. Like you said, post post apocalyptic world or whatever, where it's the lead up to the end, and all of a sudden he's just there. And yeah. Like, okay. And I guess we're along for this. Ready to throw it on? Why he went mad doesn't really matter because no. we, as an audience, maybe it would be saner for us to go mad with him because this world has gone mad, and in a Lovecraftian world, it is beyond our comprehension. We can never hope to comprehend the greater greater struggle going on that feels like a little bit like the how we're talking about big trouble in little china and army of darkness i mean like where it's just so above him he thinks he's the protagonist and instead he's a pawn that like there's no chance for him like when he meets sutter kane he's just like you realize i wanted you here every single person who i've said look at the story it's just like it's time for you to see this and start going crazy or become the the piece that i want you to be 
and then but, all of a sudden he is. He's just like, but oh, in a Bond movie, that would be the top of the second act, and then Bond would fix it in the third act. Sure. Sorry, what are you saying? And you're kind of alluding to this that's more genius than that, where he's not actually a pawn. He is the instigator of the apocalypse. He's the key. Like, he, he's the key. Like, you are identifying with the protagonist, mm-hmm. but the protagonist is a created character by our true protagonist slash antagonist of the movie. Sutter Kane is actually the only mover and shaker in this movie. Everyone else is a written character besides, I guess you could argue, Charlton Heston's character, who is actually the vessel for the apocalypse. Sam Neill's character delivers the manuscript from the fictionalized version of Sutter Kane in the novel, and that sets off the apocalypse. So he has no effect on the story. Even his, like, this can't be happening and his attempt to fight it, he is a written character by the only person in this movie that has agency, and you could argue that he doesn't even really have agency because at some point, he basically says, I have been taken over by these forces mm-hmm. who are ushering in the apocalypse through my writing, which comes true because my writing affects reality. And that circles back to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is, you know, the whole movie's theme is about how fictional constructs affect our reality. I know South Park has fallen out of favor with me mm-hmm. and other people that we've talked to on this podcast. They make a lot of South Park references for a show that doesn't like South Park. Well, because they, they weren't, I don't think they were always terrible. And one of those good ideas, I think, was uh, in the commentary track, and uh, maybe it's in the episode proper, of their three-part episode from like, I don't know, 2006, Imagination Land. Yeah. Where they kind of argue that Bugs Bunny and Superman are as real, if not more real, than most of us because they will go on throughout all of time. That's kind of this movie's point. These fictional constructs that we relegate to the idea of unreality or fiction or not real have a real, real effect on many of us in a lot of ways, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively, sometimes neutral. Like, you know, who cares if you really like uh, Dark Souls or Star Trek or whatever else that you spend all your time doing? It's something to pass the time and that can be good. But at the end of the day, it is affecting reality. Yeah, and it it embodies, I mean, a true sense of immortality. I mean, it outlives the artist's Yeah. You watch the artists of, like you said, those specific cartoons or whatever kind of creation you want to see, they pass away, but those things live on. And I think that's why politics can be very scary, is because political figures, most of us will never meet them. And even if you do meet them, you're going to meet them in political mode, which means you're getting like a facet of them. And you're going to meet them in one quick encounter. That's, you know, that's about as much as you get with Bugs Bunny, right? Like, you're getting, you're actually getting a lot more time with Bugs Bunny than you're ever going to get, even if you run into Obama or you run into Trump or whatever. Yeah, I got Bugs Bunny's autograph, so... How was it? It was fine. I think you're right, Peter, though, because uh, I think of anything, uh, Obama was a really good example of, of fictional constructs intruding on political realities where you had like a 20% contingent of this country that thought that Obama was the literal antichrist, which is a fictional construct. And they thought that this real politician, by trying to give them health care, was like concocting a diabolical scheme to have Satan take over the world. Like – I don't know how much you get, like, fictional constructs onto, like, even if you say, oh, religion, 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 I got some interesting news for you guys. The Antichrist is not in any religious text. It is like a fictional construct that people then melded with their religion to impact their idea of reality. People say, like, oh, I met up with Obama. My parents, actually, I just realized, my parents, when he was 
Um, oh, they, still, went to, they went to uh, Chili's with Obama. They yeah, went to Pepe's. They went to they went to the Pepe's with Obama. Mm-hmm. Other Illinois references. My parents met Obama, and they got an amazing picture of him. Um, this was before he was president, obviously. They said he was a very sweet man. He was a very nice man, and whatever. And then, like you know, six months later, start hearing this shit about how he's a Kenyan or something, and you like you, you start hearing these like insane political rumors, and like you're like. That is basically a real figure becoming fictionalized for fictional characters can also become real to the populace in a sense because like portrait of Obama is this like Kenyan it almost becomes Muslim. a caricature rather than even a character. It's it, it's I agree. It's just like oh okay, let's take a little thing about him and blow it out of proportion. Like you're at a uh, carnival and saying hey, if somebody did a picture of me, they're like oh like oh bigger ears and like that kind of stuff. And you're just like no, but that's not what I actually look like. Yeah. But that's just like how a cartoony version, you're like, oh, they just like took that and ran. 20 years later, that might be the thing that like, not necessarily gets put in your casket, but like that might be the way that people picture you. Oh, when I'm dead, I hope they just play my two to three episodes of this podcast. Oh, I hope so too. I hope and I'm that's around. it though. I just want to play and then just like, Peter's just standing at the front making eye contact with everybody. He so, would want you to laugh here. And they're like, they're talking <laughs> a lot about dicks. I don't know a lot about, about dicks. <laughs> we fictionalize reality and we realize fiction. And it also comes with like, guys, I like Harry Potter. But like, we really don't need like, Trump is Voldemort. Hillary is Hermione. And like, I really, yeah. like, we really don't need to just keep referencing and fictionalizing a very scary. Well, like, here, here's what's the most scary is that it's not even like a new thing in our culture. Like we're talking about like some touchdowns, but like everything that all of us learned about Christopher Columbus in school, mm-hmm. uh, like in school, like people with authority taught us as children, all of these things, this is true. And then they put those next to other facts were based on novels by Washington Irvine, mm-hmm. who wrote The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, famously. That were just like stories from a novel. It's the print the legend. I mean, this is not like revolutionary no, no, stuff. No, no. This is the but- stuff that gets talked about in like lies they taught you in history class and the people's history of the United States and all these books. But at the end of the day, they're still teaching them in history class. Mm-hmm. Like no one gives a shit that this is fiction. This is like part of, I feel like Americans legacy is like deciding what's true and what's not. And that and some of that comes from just being the victors in a lot of things that we get to, you know, we get to write history yeah, and, and history truth. is. Yeah, exactly. That just keeps, you know, we're, we're living in the quote unquote era of fake news where people can't tell or actively avoid what's true and what's not. And I think this movie is, is, is prescient in that way where, Fandom becomes its own reality. It's why there's people that think literally that Marvel is paying off Rotten Tomatoes. That That's meaningless. That's not politics. That's not affecting your health care. That's not affecting some of these other things. But people are so committed to their version of reality that X movies are good that they have created a fiction around why the general consensus is that those movies aren't good. So it's the idea of fiction ushering in the apocalypse. And that feels, for so many reasons that we've all talked about, so much more like real than it probably did in 1994. Beautifully put, Aaron. You know, part of the reason we're still talking about the thing and they live 
is because like who didn't talk about they live when we were seeing people say something on the news and then going we know you mean something else dumb fucks yeah like and not in a conspiratorial way but in a dog whistling way you know i i don't want to derail this conversation because i think it's I think it's one of the reasons we like John Carpenter, which had political horror movies in a lot of ways that are still open to interpretations or, you know, I don't I guess I don't really care if In the Mouth of Madness is about this or not about this. It it feels like it's about this. And that's what's so great about a lot of his movies is that they are applicable in ways that he probably didn't foresee. But having said that, this movie itself has a lot of fucking amazing moments, so we should probably get yeah. into right, some wait, of so them. I actually have one. At the beginning, when the therapist actually comes in and like talks to him, he says something about the crosses. I wasn't taking notes while we were watching, unfortunately, but it says something he's like, I like what you've done with the place, or like, I like, I like the show you've put on. It's like a very particular set of words. I don't remember the exact set of words, but he is expecting that everything he's seen has been a circus to convince him of their publicity stunt. Okay, so he's he's essentially uh, assuming Sam Neill's role at the beginning, where he's like, "You're trying to pull the wool over my eyes. Yeah, I'm not going to fall for it." Okay, because then the other the, the the bigger question that I have is at the end once he's walking out of the cell, the first thing he does he wipes off the crosses on his face. Sam Neill does. He, like, wipes it off of himself, and I was just... Did he already realize what was happening and that he couldn't slow it down? He couldn't change it, so at that point, he was just, like, riding the current. And then once everything was already in place, he's like, okay, I can wipe off these crosses and just ride the ride the rest of the way. Or, like, what general idea would be the point of that? So I guess my interpretation, and I will say this is one area where I think the movie you could fault it, is that it has a very inconsistent portrayal of Sam Neill during the first 10 minutes from what we see later on, Mm -hmm. partially to, I think, pull the rug out from under the audience. So it's in service of the plot and the way that John Carpenter wants to manipulate the audience more than the character. However, later on, we, we see Sam Neill covered in crosses when he first sits down with David Warner. And us as moviegoers eventually see his whole plot. There's nothing with crosses in there. No. So I think... There's an angels and devil on the church thing. It's never a reoccurring like motif or anything like that. I think my interpretation is that he did that because no one's going to let someone out of a cell who covered his entire cell with crosses and himself. Mm-hmm. He is trying to, at that moment, stay in the cell because, fuck it, this is safer than anywhere else. A good way to do that is to continue to make himself look insane, and then once he gets out, it doesn't fucking matter, and it probably feels shitty to have Cran on you. I also like the point, the moment, and it was funny, we both laughed when we were watching it, was it applies to that, is when he jacks the security guard whatever and he says he's like oh sorry about the shot the balls it was a lucky shot like there's still a human to human interaction where he's like oh wait i'm sorry about that i didn't mean to hit you in the ball like yeah i I didn't mean to get you right there that was a lucky shot i was just trying to like make it look like i was really insane there is a little break of that where he's like oh i'm sorry about the shot to the balls it was a lucky shot or whatever so i think that that does make sense where it's like he's playing a bit of a role then the fact that he is portrayed as acidic from the word go like he even doubts his own testimony as somebody who's trying to talk about their own sanity and he's like all paranoid schizophrenics say that there's a they, there's a them. The crosses, I love because as somebody who thinks a lot about Lovecraftian horror, one of the f- fun things about Lovecraftian horror is that it's so esoteric 
that all the societies that really understand Cthulhu, all the societies that really understand Shagath are uh, esoteric orders. Their knowledge is deeply, deeply bitten and buried. And the idea that Sam Neill is, I don't understand any of that shit, but I'm being controlled by it in some sense because I was being chased by them by a, t- a tunnel. Like, I kind of like the idea that it's either either it's uh, a fake, like you guys say, or if it is real, if he is truly like trying to protect himself with these crosses, he doesn't know what protective measures he could use against a Cthulhu or a Shoggoth or mm-hmm. whatever the fuck old gods are being pulled out. He just knows what he would know in a Christian society, yeah, which guys, is a cross. Holy shit. I just had a better explanation, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, Peter, but it actually it, – it's why – I've seen this movie 50 times. And the fact that I could just think of this is telling how fucking good this movie is. It's really good. Uh, I mean, I've seen it once, so I'll probably correct you, but <laughs> please go on. So, well, you had it ranked higher than me, Ryan. <laughs> what does it do? It draws us into the story because we see a man covered in crosses. Mm-hmm. Who is controlling everything that Sam Neill does? Sutter Kane, who is an author who is trying to get people to be drawn into the yeah, story. He's goading us as well as an audience. He's, yeah, he's, he's, because he needs people to read this because the whole plot of the movie is that the movie, uh, the, the novel In the Mouth of Madness, so many people read it and obsess about it that it ushers in the apocalypse. Well, the opening scene of yeah. the movie is the opening scene to the novel in the movie. Yeah, it's a crazy person so, that you're like, oh, look at this crazy guy. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess it doesn't need to make sense why Sam Neill did it in the moment, but it draws you in that he did it, which is why he did it because Sutter Kane is writing everything he does. Yeah, yeah. no, I like that. Uh, I like that interpretation actually a lot. And not only that, but... God, this is a good fucking movie. When, when the uh, the darkened figure, which, I mean, I'm assuming we can say Sutter Kane comes into his cell, Sam Neill doesn't respond 100% terrified. He seems almost exhausted. Like, he's exhausted of putting yeah. on the show. And then he goes, he says, I, I really wish I was writing this. But he's like, what do you want? Like, aren't you done with me? Is there something else you need me to do? Like, there's some sort of line like that where you're like, okay, he's he still realizes he's a vessel. But even that moment would be a part of the book, right? Yeah. Absolutely. He's a fictional construct by Sutter Kane. You don't get to see him either. It's, it's literally a dark figure where you're just like, ooh, okay. And like, I agree. I think that it builds in the idea of him being a character from the get-go. And it works on two levels because you have to wonder about his agency within this role. Because either he has full agency as much as a human being can have within these drives of fates controlling him. Because... He's being driven by fate in a lot of broad strokes to act a certain way by his author. But, like, you also have to wonder, like, does he have some agency? Because, like, the woman that he's paired with... But she's a fictional construct, too. Yeah, so yeah. the woman, Styles, she is interesting because she is, she's like, driven by uh, Sutter Kane's whims. But she seems to have some sense of control. She bucks against it. And then eventually she's like... Why don't we give in? Like, she's, she leans over to, to make out with him while he's driving. And she goes, like, it's what he wants is her term, which doesn't necessarily mean she doesn't have control. It means that she is giving up control in some sense. And did did Christine come out after this? 
just in general. Oh no, way way, way before. Way. So yeah. I actually think that the car I didn't realize until right now, the car itself does work as a storytelling device and you've lost this character. I mean like truly into the madness because when she's driving, that's when all of a sudden she hits the old man boy. She wakes up and all of a sudden he's like, I can't believe I slept through the night and she kind of realizes, hey, I'm going nuts. And then he does a similar thing where it's when he's driving around where all of a sudden you realize there's no coming back from it for him. Like there, yeah. he's he's too far down the rabbit hole. He's gone. So at this point, you, I mean, you obviously start off with an unreliable narrator, but at that point, you're just seeing where the hell it goes. He was never going to make it into town unless Sutter Kane's will fit that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but even that, and I think this is the, I think the real genius of this movie. I don't think he has any agency because even when he meets Sutter Kane in the cathedral and Sutter Kane is like telling him and he's fighting it, Sutter Kane's telling him his bond plan and he's fighting it. He's like, yeah. Great, keep fighting it. This is exactly where you're supposed to be at this point in the story. Like, he never has any agency. And, and I think the, he has like 30% agency. I think it's like 70% of it is guided and 30% is of his control. But see, I, I find that less interesting. I find that more interesting. The idea that like he could have broken it, but like Sutter Kane is so fucking confident. I feel like he was completely taken. Like, like he said, he goes, I thought I was writing books that were becoming true, but then I realized the voices were telling me what to write or something like that, where it's like he's yeah. he's, he's completely under some other agency's control. And he's never worried, or the agents controlling Sutter Kane are never worried about where Sam Neill's at, because every point in the story, he's always at where he's supposed to be mm-hmm. in the story they're telling. So it's it's him him rejecting Sutter Kane and saying it's not true and running away from the monsters. You literally have Styles reading that part of the book. Like there there's no agency if if when he's rejecting and fighting back, it's already been written for him. I'm saying that he might be <laughs> Sutter Kane is exhibiting a heavy hand at that particular moment. But Styles is reading her, his his stage directions as he runs out. I think that Sam Neill has some sense of control because of how we watch Styles react to her being taken over. In a lot of Lovecraftian works, like weirdly enough, Lovecraft wants us to be one of his competents. One of his his daring leads that like knows a lot about architecture, like he wanted uh, people to identify with him as a high society dude who has these these highfalutin interests. And I think that like this is a very similar thing where the author wants us to identify with Sam Neill, with John Trent. Which is yeah. funny we haven't said his name. John Trent, Sam Neill, he is a highly competent person and they want us to like kind of like ride this wave of like highly competent, highly competent. Oh shit, even he's losing faith? Maybe we should be losing faith too. Mm-hmm. And in that sense, I think that like watching him up against Styles, who is like seems to be bucket we get to like watch Styles like buck against it. Like where she like seems like she's she's not into the idea of being taken over by Kane and then all of a sudden Kane writes a line. Like you said, and then that line controls. Like, no, let's make out. Like, there's also, like, there there are hints to it. And then all of a sudden, there are ones, like you said, they're, all of a sudden, she's completely taken over. She's like, let's make out. It's like, what are you doing? Yeah. And, like, what, and you're like, oh, there, there's ones where she cannot. There's not even an option to resist yes. at that point. You're you're completely taken over. And I think that, re- you know, you know when you're reading a book and, like, you have a slightly different interpretation of a scene of somebody and you're reading between the lines, so to speak? 
Yeah. Sam Neill reading between the lines is him having 30% agency, but the lines are 70% agency. So, like, he doesn't have full agency, but he has, like, some semblance of, like, he can almost break the book or almost break the character, but, like, it doesn't matter because there's this Lovecraftian concept of, like, ominous overpowering that he can't break out of. So then would you say that they, the innkeeper with her husband chained to her ankle and what he sees from that is that number creeping from 30% to higher? Like, where it's like, it goes from... People become actors. It goes from, oh, this woman's being strange. Oh, this painting is weird. Oh, wait, it is weird. Oh, wait, she is strange. There's definitely something going on here. And at that point, that's like creeping up where he's losing more and more control. Or is there something else that's happening? That's an interesting idea. During the movie. That is an interesting idea because she seems to be, she seems to be like the uh, the old lady, Mrs. Pottsworth or whatever, um, who, you know, Lovecraftian monstrosity who chops up her, her husband and runs the inn. Yeah. She seems to be losing herself at a very fast rate. Yeah, and that, I feel that, like that goes from zero to ten pretty quick. Uh, in, in between three or four interactions total. I yeah, mean, it really is. It's like, oh, okay, we checked in. Oh, okay, where's Styles? And then he comes back with one other time, and then he catches her in the back room or whatever, and she's all sorts of technically. Yeah, she exists, and then Sutter Kane steps in, and he's like, "Actually, my will will be met." So what we're gonna say here? Uh, well, I I just. I, so I appreciate your guys' interpretation of that. Doesn't sound like it. But <laughs> well, totally fair, fair enough. I'm totally kidding. It's funny that we all love this movie because I feel like as you guys are talking about this, so they say in the movie that Sam Neill didn't exist before he started being in this movie. Which is why I said at the intro, the only character that I'm sure is like real and was always real was Charlton Heston mm-hmm. from Wayne's World 2. Oh yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah, and you could actually you can tell he's real because uh, when they panned in the background, uh, when when Sam Neill was first coming into his office, you can tell he's real because uh, who, who's waiting for the next appointment? Michael Moore. Yeah, you Yeah, absolutely. And so, and so, anyways, uh, no, but like I, they tell him very specifically that. You didn't exist. Can you think of your life before you start investigating this? You can't. I wrote all of that. You are my main character in the book. And then those posters that he sees of the book ha- always had his face on it. I think the idea is he doesn't have agency because he was the main character of Sutter Kane's next book, which brought the reality fully into reality like the reality of his writing that always started existed in this fictional construct of a town that he created finally starts invading the real world and that's the apocalypse and and the the lead character of that book that ushers in the the that apocalypse is sam neill's character why i think that's more interesting is because i think there's nothing more terrifying than this idea that we are pawns in a scheme that we can't control. Sam Neill's character thinks he has agency. John Trent thinks he has agency. Sure. But at no point in the story does he. He is always being written, even when he's fighting back. Those areas where he is rebelling against the force that's controlling him is just as written as when he's going along or seemingly going along with it. And I find that both horrifying and more interesting as a concept than a fictional character trying to break away from the page. And I actually think it even goes into the real world where they did a study. I don't know if it still holds up, but at the very least I read about it like 12 years ago 
where like they measured our like synapses when they were communicating with our like uh, motion and found that our hands started to move hypothetically like one twentieth thousandth of a second before the electric impulse reaches started making us move. Yeah. So the idea being that we were already doing the action before our brain ordered us to to actually act that way. And there was this theory that we don't actually have free will. We're not controlling it anything what our brain is like geniusly designed to do is to rationalize everything every action that we do i don't know if that's like again that was one study and it probably doesn't hold up anymore and all these things but as a concept that is like top two three terrifying things that our entire reality is like controlled by stuff that we don't understand and everything else is a rationalization and that's why i think that reading of this movie works better uh, and and why I think the movie supports that read. How do you justify which people are real? Because the interaction with Sam Neill, then, I understand you're saying, like, he's a written character who has come to life in the real world. But, I mean, then, then where do you draw the line? Because... So, they say that um, Styles and Sam Neill were characters for the book. Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm adding that into the fact that... And they don't seem to have much of a history or past, and they serve a purpose to... The story. So, I mean, I guess it doesn't matter where where everyone else comes into reality. Like, everything that we're watching is the book. Yeah. So, I guess you could make the case that Charlton Heston's character is no more real than Sam Neill's character. But at some point, based on the way the movie's themes work, is that everything is that this does invade reality in the same way that they are able to go to this actual town that didn't exist before he made it exist. Even though, of course, still fictional characters are going there. Within uh, Westworld and Ex Machina recently explored the idea, though theirs was uh, an actual rebellion, Sam Neill could not rebel. Uh, They explored the idea that even within a rigid set of confines even somebody who is completely manufactured and and it is in a manifestation of someone's will can even within a set of scripts break out of what was intended by the creator or so like if you go back did did charlton huston interact directly with styles and even even if he did you could argue that that was just a written for sam neill's uh character to see but like i i'm more interested i want to agree with it and then also i want to go back and look to see where the real world starts and the fiction starts creeping into it yeah well i think it gets even more interesting with the fact that if you're going to take its ending seriously which is he is watching the same movie that we just watched which would also exist in that movie because it's a never-ending uh, circle, essentially, that you also have to admit that, well, obviously, if he's watching everything portrayed in this this film version, then everything he was doing was... Like, it, it gets... As long as you're not willing to say that's just a, like a, ha-ha, twist, fuck you, this is a way... Like, I, I take it as literal, but I feel like my brain gets very oh. warped around trying to explain it. I think the waters get muddied intentionally going into madness is the audience going along the same ride that sam neil is i mean you start off the same spot it's open to a lot of interpretation and honestly i think talking about it this much today has made me appreciate it even more yeah yeah i'm so good like that idea of even in your moments of rebellion that that is written for you is just such a 
hair-raising concept. It's very yeah. scary. That's like almost Lovecraftian to a genetic level. Yeah. It's, it's not just that the universe is uh, out of your control. It's that uh, we as ants in this greater cosmic universe have even been genetically modified by the gods. They just care that we do what ants are supposed to do. Or like the idea of your rebellion, your rejection of something is perfectly in line to the plan. You don't even realize. Yeah. You're like, oh, I'm not yeah. going to follow that. And you're like, you're following exactly what I want you to by rejecting that. Yeah. And in a sense, this is not a Lovecraftian uh, movie because uh, what Samuel does actually seems to matter to the plot. I mean, Call of Cthulhu yeah. has, has a narrator actually affecting the plot, and Innsmouth has super competent military people, which is like, it's very anti what people think of as Lovecraftian. Sam Neill, John Trent needed to do exactly what he did in order to get there. Well, and that's why I'm interested, really, of where fiction blends into reality is because, like uh, Aaron said earlier, Sam Neill brings the manuscript. And that's where real-world characters start to collide because there has to be some sort of event, handoff, something that starts the leak into madness or chaos or whatever. Yeah. So I do think it's interesting. The last thing I'll say is that, Peter, you're 100% right that it's not Lovecraftian. It's almost Christian because the whole point of Christian is that, like, you're sinning and all your bad shit is, like, leading to a redemption. That's, like, the whole arc of Christianity is that you're – it's great if you're really good all the time, but even those people in Christianity are – like, those aren't the saints. No. All, all the all the people that Christians revere are these people that like Paul, either fucked up or were bad or were yeah. yeah and then became good and the idea being that they were always meant to sin and fail uh, so that they could be redeemed because that is Christ the Redeemer yeah, yeah. and th- and that's this too like this is even when Sam Neill's rejecting it or fighting it or anything that's just all part of his narrative that was laid out for him so i think we should probably put a cap on this we gotta get to scenes i really want to talk about the sfx and i really want to talk about more yeah i feel like anytime i brought up a scene i was legitimately trying to be like okay so anyways there's this one scene that's been bothering me yeah one thing i'll talk about so this is a hardcore uh not segue (laughs) is uh, the concept of this being a follow-up to The Thing is interesting because The Thing is actually usually quoted as Lovecraftian. And I don't think The Thing is very Lovecraftian except for that the monsters have tentacles and they're amorphous. My least favorite scene in The Thing, the only scene in The Thing I think is bad, um, kind of specifically says that this is not a Lovecraftian movie because there's a sequence of a UFO crashing at the beginning of the thing that I fucking hate. It's my only part of the movie I don't like. I like it. It's very like Big Trouble in Little China, but like, but like it doesn't work in the thing because so you're it's, saying it's not Lovecraftian because it doesn't come from underneath the earth. Or, or, I mean, it's it's not Lovecraftian because it's specifically alien. It's it's an accident. Yeah. The, right. the crash the crash seems to happen like almost by accident. All right. Yeah knowable right because there's a there's a means of conveyance there's a planet that they're from so in theory you could steal the spaceship and go see the planet yeah it it seems like a competing species not a species that's so big from us that we can never understand so i was going to say that the reason that i think that people call it that is because one of the greatest components of the thing is this idea of an inevitability like eventually the thing is going to take over everything you can freeze it you can do stuff like that um which is a component of lovecraft 
uh, fiction. But if you think the defining characteristic of Lovecraftian imagery in fiction is inevitability, uh, that is a wild misinterpretation, even if it is a core component. And even though I think The Thing has the best special, practical special effects of any movie of all time, I just don't yeah. like the idea that just saying it has tentacles means that it's Lovecraftian. Yeah. Like, but, I'm just. Yeah. But, like, and like I said, I, I'm not, I don't uh, know Lovecraft super well, but I always figured. Less so the tentacles, and I understand that that's a huge thing with, like, Cthulhu and all these other uh, specific monsters in that universe. But the ending specifically of the thing of recognizing that one of the two is probably still harboring that. And you're like, oh, at this point, it's still going to happen. It's There's nothing more you can do. It's just... They're almost too exhausted it, for suicide. It is. You're yeah. just like, oh, it's just something that, like, nope, we tried to stop the spread, but it's going to happen probably. But you don't know for sure. And, like, that, that to me, from what I know vaguely felt more uh, Lovecraftian than just the tentacles. Obviously, that's like an element of it. But um, I think this movie, uh, in a follow-up to The Thing, while in no way more impressive, does have some pretty fucking impressive special effects that I yeah. want to touch on. Um, I think that the one thing that this movie nails, Leviathan last week, I think the director didn't do a great job showing up the special effects and the special effects had no fucking help. The special effects were impressive because Stan Winston is a fucking genius. The director gave those special effects no help. There was no work on great lighting effects or really smart editing or whatever because you can overproduce it. Like there's another movie called Splinter, but Splinter is a flawed, flawed fucking movie because Splinter overproduces the monster by doing all these cheapo, fucking awful editing techniques that kind of ruin the monster. And then Leviathan underproduces the monster by not doing great lighting effects and not doing great camera work and like quick cuts. This movie is the perfect balance where like it'll show you a flash of the monster and then a long take of Sam Neill reacting to the monster. Yeah. And great, great lighting. There's only one shot I think really is errant of the monsters and that's he rips open the portrait on the wall, mm -hmm. the paper, and all the monsters in there. And you can clearly tell they're just like in another part of the studio. They're just all standing on a flat platform. Like it's. Oh, yeah. It's a little um, like in, in a Dark Souls level because Dark Souls and Bloodborne are very Lovecraftian. In a Dark Souls level where there's just a boss that's just like standing on the other end of like this like black abyss. But like both of you get this flat platform to deal with. Yeah, you're like, oh, I, I guess I'm going to be leading up to that. You're like, oh, that's just something like over there. Yeah. I realize if I go over there, all right. Yeah, because yeah, it's not like this 3D space anymore. It's just like him and I are both standing in a room and there's this thing between. It's, mm -hmm. it's a little cheap. It was weird, though, that like as they started walking towards Sam Neill, that a health bar appeared underneath <laughs> and it said the horde. I thought that was a little... That's probably my least favorite moment of the movie. Probably. And I hated when he tripped and then disappeared and then, like, ate a leaf and came back. Yeah, that was a little strange. Like, the thing is, like, souls recovered. You're like, mm -hmm. all right, cool, cool, mm -hmm. cool. <laughs> Oh, he used the, the ring of calamity. <laughs> I wish they just didn't address it. He was like, oh, interesting. I don't Man. know what that's about, but sure, sure. Sam I'll talk about it later on my podcast. Sam Neill should not have used the ring of calamity in that third <laughs> act. That was, no. that was a really... He wasn't even cursed. Yeah, you should have just used, like... You gotta save it. Because there's something that I said to Peter that I thought was hilarious was it says in the mouth of madness and there's no there's no like music or anything like that and then all of a sudden it says like sam neil and it just goes into heavy guitar oh no and i was like i was like, like oh yeah that's why we came here like oh fuck yeah here we go it was just so funny oh uh, it was great no it maybe it, it was one of those things where you don't realize 
uh, like a life goal until you see it. And I was like, <laughs> I don't care about being in a good or, or shitty movie. I would love to be in a movie. And right when my name comes on screen, just like the heaviest, like, yeah. like, oh, cool. All right. Sure. It is John Carpenter ripping off Metallica's entertainment. It's, it's pretty much. I mean, it's, it's weird. No, that's how, like, I can't remember. With how shitty Metallica has gotten in the post Napster age. Like, yeah. he can have it. Sorry. Power, I don't know. Yeah. It's just like power chords. Yeah. It, it does work. And I will say, you know, Peter, you and I have been discussing about the last couple of months. We've had a little bit of a dearth of like, I want to talk about this movie all night. I want to talk around I this just, movie, in this movie, out of this movie. Yeah. So let's do like another two and a half hours tomorrow or yeah. what's the solution? Yeah. I feel bad that we're cutting this out at probably what will be our longest episode since uh, ever. Yeah. Probably but, by the time this is done recording because I could talk about it for another three hours. I think hours. last time I was on, we went two and a half, where I was just like, and you don't think about it, then also you look up, you're like, it's been an hour and 45? Oh, it's been two hours? So, on a higher, yeah, exactly. And as a higher level, like, I feel really good that we're back into that, because I haven't shit. felt this, I haven't felt this way in a while, where it's like, oh, fuck, I need to go to bed. <laughs> but I have an hour left to talk, minimum. So, a couple, I, I have so many good moments, I'm gonna go through them really quick. But uh, there's a great triple fake out where he's having the dream at the beginning where uh, he's walking down the alley uh, and then the cop is a pig monster and then he wakes up and then he does it again. And this time he's getting killed by the axe people and he wakes up again and you're like, oh, shit. And then the camera pans and the pig monster cop is on the couch with him. Yeah. yeah. We'll get into it with Prince of Darkness or Ghosts of Mars. But uh, Carpenter, I just realized recently – this is going to sound very stupid because it seems very obvious. Now, Carpenter has a thing for the mindless horde. Escape from New York has the crazies. Yeah. Ghosts of Mars has the ghosts of Mars. Escape from uh, L.A. has similar crazies, but the, um, the like plastic surgery crazies. Like, yeah. Obviously, Prince of Darkness has the crazy hobos. Like He, he loves this mindless horde, and I think the mindless horde works really well when they're kind of deformed and Lovecraftian, where the eyes are offset and their, their skin is fucked up. And I like the, that idea of the, the triple fake out almost feels like yeah. um, Kane calibrating him. I mean, the sense of like, because the first one, it does. The first one is, is he sees the cop, the cop says, hey, like, he's like, hey, you want your comeuppance next or whatever. He's like, you want to beat down? And he just keeps walking. And then, like, the next one is he's a pig face and he's, like, terrified. And the next one is him getting beaten up or whatever. Clearly, there's, like, some weird personality shift that it feels like he's writing and erasing and rewriting and erasing and like that's perfect for the movie well and from a director standpoint like john carpenter is setting it up so that you think that the first so the first one's a fake out Mm -hmm. and it's not that scary and the second one is much scarier and so you think that's what he's trying to get you with like he does the first one and that's a fake out and then the second one is much scarier where now there's blood and there's more pig monsters and more people around it and you're like oh this yeah, and then this – so you're like, okay, the first one was a fake out. Now he's trying to get me. Mm-hmm. And you don't realize that it's the third one he's trying to get you with and it works every time. Or you're sitting me. on a couch as well, like, which also – Yeah, exactly. All right, okay. I'm there with him. And yeah. Weirdly enough, yeah. it works better for home video. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even though the ending works better for a theatrical audience. Also true. Yeah, so I love uh, I love the part where he rips – Sutter Kane rips himself out of his own story with the special effects of the pages, like, being ripped out of the movie screen, and he disappears with it. I think that is a – it's not that great of an effect, to be honest, but it works really well in the context of the story. 
Yeah, and the last scene I'll mention just for uh, brevity <laughs> is uh, I'm laughing because I don't know how this just episode brevity, is. Just to keep it under three hours. Just, just yeah. the idea of brevity is humorous to me at this point is I feel like if you've met anyone that has seen In the Mouth of Madness, all you have to do is go, man, yeah, that blue scene. And everyone knows what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. It's pretty terrific. On the bus? Yeah, where he's like blue and then the color is so vibrant, but then somehow still natural. Like, it's not like everyone's been painted blue. The lighting is just blue reflection in a way that both is exactly what Sutter Kane's character said, but also in a way that seems like a blue that you've seen in movies at night scenes a thousand times that it shouldn't seem as creepy as it is. It's so good. And it's... um hinting at the Eiffel 65 song that would come, so it's almost predicting that. Um, yeah, it's prescient. Yeah. <laughs> and it, 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 it's a very good point, because it, it's something that, like, if the scene were just blue, no one would comment on it. Nobody would say, dabba dee dabba die. But him That's making the scene blue is like, woo! It still transitions well into seeing him on the bus, then all of a sudden, like, blue, and because it, it's like 30 seconds. Yeah, it's a, it's a terrific sequence. Yeah, yeah, Aaron, those, those are great moments. My next... Uh, moment probably the moment where they go into the inn for the first time and they're driving up and there's this beautiful new england like like yeah. orange leaves and everything they pull up it's kind of like a beautiful looking inn it's it's sort of idealizing new england in a way that like i, I like to think lovecraft would be proud of and Stephen King. Yeah, and Stephen King, because it's <laughs> i do like that Stephen King has Maine claimed so it has to be new hampshire do they talk him once or twice? Yeah. Once or twice in that movie. Uh, in the same scene, they they say Stephen King at least twice. Right. They say like he's bigger than Stephen King, yeah, and then like he's like use that as the bench. Yeah, so Stephen though. King ten to one. Yeah, that, that's yeah. the one thing I don't like because like I, I oh Stephen it, it, it ripped me out a little bit. I didn't like it because I was like Stephen King is so big that like when we see these covers, we know you're referencing Stephen King. I can literally see a Stephen King cover. From where I'm sitting right now, I couldn't tell you what no book it accent. is, but the 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 words Stephen King are bigger than the actual title. Yeah, they are. yeah, it's Stephen King, Desperation. I can see it from where I'm sitting right now. Like Stephen King is such an omnipresent author, you don't have to call him out. As soon as you point out one of those covers, we know it's Stephen King. Yeah. Anyways, so they pull up to this beautiful old uh, inn and they walk in and they talk to this sweet old lady and then um, they look at this this portrait and it changes in a way oh yeah portrait changes four or five times but the first I like the way it changes at first the most because you're just looking at it like it's like um, Muzak almost <laughs> like you look at it like it's like it's just noise yeah uh, uh, Thomas Kincaid and then it's bed and breakfast nonsense are we just like sure okay yeah and then when it comes back, you're like, oh, the art has changed, but I can't quite pick on why. That's one of my favorite moments in the movie because you're like, reality could be changing all around me and I'm not noticing. I only remember three noticeable differences, but even it could easily be like five or six tweaks. And it's still, it's just fantastic because then all of a sudden it does a good job of drawing your focus to the painting and then second guessing yourself like that where you're saying at least four or five and i think it's three where then but then you are focused on the painting itself like that i think that's a, a great mechanism 
that then we're sitting here talking about like, oh, see, I thought like, oh, it didn't move, but I'm watching it then. Like it's it's in the background. It's kind of and you're like, oh, I'm still like watching it to see if it's different yeah. from this to that to this. Yeah. And here's why I think it's extra amazing is that the art style of that painting reminds me. I don't know if this is on purpose, but it reminds me of the art style that you see in the illustrations in Stephen King type books where they have like a random illustration every 300 pages for no reason. And the art style is like it's like kind of detailed, but not that much. And it gives you like an imprint of some image that's been described in the book. And the art style of that painting matches that like black and white drawings that are like on one page. And you're like, oh, oh, okay. There's a picture here. Sure. And then 300 pages later, you're like, oh, okay. I can see that. And weirdly enough, I really don't like it in the Gunslinger or any of the Dark Tower books because I'm like, hey, hey, I had my picture of what Roland looked like. Don't throw your shit at yeah. me. And I like it in the um, I like it in the movie because it's it is sort of it's pop art. It's not it's not like great art. It's not supposed to be like she asked. But it feels, yeah, it feels like scribbled in as like a. People are going to want to see what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, she doesn't accidentally have some, like, great romantic piece of art. Um, see. Yeah. Yeah, and, it, and, it's, and it's interesting to me because, yeah, that's, that's one of my favorite sequences in the movie. And obviously the, the changes as it goes on are really great. Like, they got a really good artist to draw um, some sort of, like, Lovecraftian monstrosity uh, in the scene in place of the couple later on. That's cool. Yeah. But, uh... I really like the sequence where, like, all of a sudden they're turned around. That's the only difference because, like, it's really creepy because it fucks with your sense of time and place. Because you're mm-hmm. like, what else is changing around me that I don't notice? And also, this this brings up a broader point. Uh, making your movie about a uh, fucked up author that is, you know, manipulating everything around him or uh, making your movie about, you know all this is a dream or making a movie about how um, this is supposed to be fucking with you kind of like smooths over a lot of cracks in it. Like if there's a continuity yeah. error in mouth of madness, it's not a continuity error. <laughs> like it, you could argue that it's like, it was, in, yeah, it was, it, it's bad writing, but it doesn't matter because the whole thing is that Stephen King, it, it kind of even says this in the fucking movie. Which almost explains away all the weird style stuff in the middle and all the stuff that's inconsistent is that, yeah, it's it's not great writing, but it gets under your skin. Like, they fucking say it in the movie, which I think can be true for a lot. Of, even the, the, the limited Stephen King I've read, there's a lot of moments where you kind of roll your eyes, but the broader thing is hooking you along the way. That happens in this movie. I said it earlier on. I don't know if it got cut out. At this point, for how long we've been talking, but I, but I, I said like, is in the edit. yeah, I know. So, so that's why I'm saying it again. Is that I said there's some there's some areas in the first two acts that 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 feel off to me or they don't develop enough. But it's actually fine because the whole movie is being written by a by someone that they say is not the greatest author of characters and dialogue and all these other things that they spell out but the story as a whole grips people and that is like oh my god it's like a perfect this is my number one Jonica. let's go back whoa, and redo whoa. it like number six no i'm yeah, number six <laughs> this is the highest rating of the movies that we're doing this month and i hope i can muster the same amount of enthusiasm because god this movie's so fucking good
Ryan, what uh, what scenes did you want to call out? Final thoughts? All the scene stuff that you guys brought up, I was using mine to try and bring us back on track when we were like, so <laughs> it was also a good way to just be like, oh, I have this one thing I do want to talk about. I will say just a little tidbit that I thought was interesting was the entire time uh, Sutter Kane was bugging me because I recognized him from another movie and I eventually had to Google it today. Uh, and luckily, he's only an actor in, you know, like 133 movies. Yeah, Jurgen Pretsch now is, a, is probably <laughs> big as fuck. Oh, yeah, but I did like a quick scroll and was like, oh, fuck. So I was telling Peter, I was like, I can, ima- I can see exactly what he's wearing and that kind of stuff. And it was, he's the main villain in Beer Fest. Like, it wasn't even a good movie. <laughs> I mean, like, it's, I, I like the movie. That's actually but tragic. But it was one of those ones where I was like, I was like, that's it. Oh, that's not as satisfying that's, as I expected. That's really like, oh. I was like, oh, that's it. I remember sitting in so-and-so's basement and watching that. Like, oh, okay. No, you're like, oh, all right. Yeah, that's Poor exactly thing. Fan of John Carpenter. I did not expect it to kind of make a jump as high as it did. And I was happy. Obviously, that's always a good thing to feel. It's like, oh, you know, I'm <laughs> expecting a lot from this movie, but when it isn't quite as good as my hopes are stacking it up to be, I'll still be happy. You're like, no, it was great. I thought it was a good time. I'm excited. Like, like I said, once or twice, depending on the edit, I'm excited to watch it again very <laughs> soon though. After just like talking about it at length, you're just like, Oh, I want to rewatch like Southland tales. Fantastic flick. I didn't feel the need after watching it two and a half times to go revisit it after we talked about it for hours. This one, I'm like, oh, see, I want to. I actually want to like rewatch it right now. I want to like go watch it all again and just interpret everything on different levels, just to see where like you were coming from, Aaron, or even like things Peter said, and just like, all right, oh, okay, that's true. Okay, I see this now or that now. This movie uh, has a lot to offer, and that one thing that can really confuse, I think, a first time watch is that it feels like all build up which I think can like propulse you towards the end, but you might not necessarily like when you reach the end, you might not necessarily be happy because you're just like, uh, the movie kept pushing me, pushing me, pushing me. And then eventually I reached the end and I was like, uh, well, what just happened? Like that can be very, for this kind of movie, it can be very um, frustrating. For this particular film, I didn't think it was frustrating at all uh, because every step of the way, the movie found meaning in why I was being confused, which in a sense is like one of the friendlier Lovecraft type adaptations. So uh, yeah, I, I really love it. Psychological thriller that breaks through a lot of the stereotypes and negative stereotypes that I had of the genre. That's perfect. And I'm actually going to sum it up with not really talking about the movie itself and and actually just talk about something related to this podcast, which is very early on in this podcast, Peter and I kind of joke that the really the movies that we wanted to cover and the tone of our show, we almost wanted to be like those movies that you can't stop talking about. And the tone of our show being like two drunks at a bar <laughs> who just won't stop fucking talking about every aspect of a movie. It's hard to get those movies because even though that's like that's like the the, the ideal that is the the perfect perfect version of this show where every time we watch a movie we're like fuck started recording at 9 p.m central standard time and i already want to go to bed but let's try to get through this and here we are it is three hours later and i want to talk about this movie for two more hours oh, yeah. 
I think this movie fits with what we wanted for the show. Yeah, the core concept. Every episode. It is that movie. It is a movie that I want to keep talking about. It's a, it's a movie that even though we, we are going longer than we ever have pre-edit, I feel like we didn't get to most of it. And that is a testament to John Carpenter's filmmaking as a whole because I feel like we kind of went through this in the thing as well. And how good this movie is that there is so much to talk about, so many different interpretations. So if you haven't seen this movie and you're and you're listening to this podcast, you should get a bunch of friends together because this is the type of movie that you're going to want to talk about after. And I will say I'm very lucky to be joined by uh, my podcast co-host and uh, even someone someone I don't know all that well. But who I'm not surprised is Peter's best friend in real life because I always enjoy talking to him. Very sweet, Aaron. Thank you very much for saying that. Feel free to invite me on your podcast, other listeners, but that's not going to happen. I'm an exclusive (laughs) exclusive (laughs) guest to just this podcast. Yeah, that that contract that you signed was was like, like, do you want to cost us nothing? It sucks that you can never talk on audio ever again. Too long, too bad. (laughs) It's only on this one. But yeah, I, I can't agree with Aaron more. It's a piece that deserves. Uh, discussion and it's something that you can just ramble about for way too fucking long and that's why this episode is way too fun. Still could keep talking about it. I mean like I'm 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 still very interested in talking yeah. about the concepts of it, which is the biggest testament to it in of itself. Um so yeah, Aaron, do you do you want to run us through the rest of the month? <laughs> yeah, it's Prince of Darkness with Eric Giuliani, I wanna say. Uh Galliani. So close. Also very glad that your name is not Giuliani because that connotation is fucking ruined and it's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. So Tom Peeler is joining us to talk about the aforementioned debatable what's the better escape movie Escape (laughs) from L.A. And then we are finishing up the month with Marcus Jones, enemy of the podcast. Everyone says friend. He's an enemy. Self-proclaimed. We really liked him on the show, but he's declared himself an enemy. To talk about Ghosts of Mars. That should wrap up the rest of Carping About Carpenter. And uh, yeah, I think that the best way to end this episode is abruptly because of the runtime. Yeah, the woodwork month. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, we broke the record. Yeah. So, uh, Ryan, I'd like to say you know, Jurassic Park theme song for breaking the record. Yeah, <laughs> I was kind of doing like Rocky, like wait, wait that's okay. the final countdown. Yeah, the final countdown. Yeah. Okay, yeah. from the film, the final countdown. From the film Europe. <laughs> yeah, the um, final countdown. So the best way to end this episode is by saying. Goodbye. That's fine. You guys can go away. We're going to talk about In the Mouth of Madness for another three more hours. We're sorry. We're going to stop recording it because our computers are out of memory. Good night. film we'd like to discuss in this uh this episode Wait, have you but watched all the movies on your voodoo no which one do you want to talk have about you pretty much only used it to watch monster trucks <laughs> no but i have watched it because that's what we pretty much yeah we for. mostly no. used it to watch monster trucks it's like 75 um, percent monster trucks yeah, yeah I, I i honestly wish you could make your library a little smaller 
Uh, okay, so I want to know. So, what movie are you guys concerned about? Let's just get it out. Monster we're trucks. done. I really want to talk about monster trucks. <laughs> Wait, sorry, we're talking about. Are we actually going back to our list? Oh no, no! I thought you actually said you, no, you want to talk about a movie. It's, I it's own. Monster trucks. No, it's no, only, no. We're, oh. we're just trying to talk about monster trucks. Yeah, I just want to talk about monster trucks. <laughs> well, if, uh, look, if we do monster trucks, which we probably will, uh, can we do a, I, a bonus half hour on monster trucks? No. <laughs> First of all, we can't. We can't do it without Doug. That's true. Yeah. And but I do think that Ryan would be a good because Ryan and you come back for the box too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So Ryan, uh, unbeknownst, I, I don't even want to get into it, but you had changed your profile picture to a monster trucks picture. I did. Well, Peter photoshopped Creech into one of our pictures, and I didn't even know what the hell that was. But I was like, I'll put that as my profile picture. I was like, I don't care. I'll just put that in there. <laughs> yeah. And then it took me a while. And then all of a sudden, it's like all three of us are talking. I was like, Oh, this is like for a movie. Oh wait, I have to watch the trailer. Oh, this is amazing. And it's it's a great film. Frankly, I, I I really liked it. Uh, it is it's pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah. But I made my I made my entire family watch it for my birthday. <laughs> but like extend extended family. Like I was it was my uh, sister's wedding on the 29th of April. My birthday is the 30th of April, and so everyone's <laughs> like, "Well, you know, we we did a lot of stuff. What do you guys want to do?" Uh, they're like, Aaron, everyone's tired. Why don't we just pick a movie you can pick? And I'm like, I want to watch Monster Trucks. Great and it's my birthday, and so everybody's so watch yeah. My Monster my six my 61 year old dad uh, is the only one that made it all the way through with me because everyone was tired. He was very confused about why I wanted to watch it. I feel like, <laughs> sure, especially after the end, you're like, that was pretty good. He's like, what? He's like, I'm going to bed. <laughs> we'll talk about this tomorrow. <laughs> it was funny though because like because because it was my birthday. He was and he I think he felt bad. He didn't need to because it was like everyone's like I'm so tired and you're an adult we had man. been up drinking we've been up drinking the night before I'm like that's my birthday party the reception to my sister's wedding like we had a lot of fun no big deal but like he was not just trying to like organize this movie watching but he was like trying to engage with me I think because he wanted me like you, oh you want to watch this movie it. yeah I selected it so he like stayed up and then was talking about it through it was like this is just so stupid don't you think it's like he was really <laughs> oh yeah, me and Peter watched him. We're like, they could, they could. There were so many recognizable actors as like seven characters that could easily be whittled down to two, because they're just like show up, say a couple things, and you're like, oh, okay, this is like their role, and then they disappear for the entire movie. You're just like, okay, neat. yeah, right. we're, we're gonna have to do a monster trucks episode because the movie- we're gonna. Have- Hey folks, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. If you want to get in touch with us, please reach out to us at either our website, wltwpodcast.com, or our Facebook group, facebook.com backslash we love to watch. And uh, yeah, reach out to us, give us some feedback, give us some support, uh, suggest movies for the show, all that. We are also available on SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, and iTunes. Thanks for listening.